are listening to the Quarter to Three Games podcast. My name is Tom Chick, and my game of the week is not Sid Meier's Starships. I was going to cue you, but you you have your cue. I jumped jumped on it. Pretend I didn't say anything. Take it away. That's okay. That's okay. Skype hates me, so it's it's we'll blame the technology. No, my name is Adam Beesener, and my game of the week is not the Cones of Dunshire. Hey, oh my God, you got the reference, uh, Adam. I'm so right off the bat. I, that's I'm just so proud of you. <laughs> as soon as the music, because I didn't know what music was you were going to bumper with, and as soon as that came on, I was like, oh my God, this is obviously what I need to do no, as I a joke. Even know- that song until I saw it on Parks and Rec. I mean, Parks and Rec is the one that got me into letters for, for Cleo. I had no idea who they were until I, I saw that episode. Oh, man. I I owned that CD back when CDs were a thing that people owned. And, you know, I was 14 or whatever the heck. No, that was that was like wheelhouse, you know, mid-90s grungy alternative. Well, oh, you man. You just made me look forward to this next hour or so all the more, Adam. Th- thank you so much. That was awesome. <laughs> uh, so uh, to, to let folks know who you are, a, a little bit about who you are, um, tell us briefly, uh, I know you mainly, at least first and foremost, you you were at one point a writer for Game Informer, right? Is that yes, is, yes. I was the... I was going to say I was the uh, I was the PC editor for Game Informer for a decade. Ten, ten, ten and uh, that's something else, Adam. I know, right? So, <laughs> so I decided it was time to go do something else eventually, and um, I I landed at Stardock because mostly because strategy games have always been kind of my first and and foremost love in PC games, and uh, it seemed it just seemed like the fit. Uh, what has been most difficult and what has been most easy uh, about making that transition from being a, from being a dude working in print covering the industry to being on the now are you uh your, what's your official title at Stardock? So my official title is brand manager. Uh, what that what that means in practice is that I basically create a lot of the content for. Uh, the the sort of uh, marketing is kind of a dirty word, but we but we refer to it as marketing content, right? It's it's press releases, it's uh, you know taking screenshots, it's recording videos, it's uh, uh, all the stuff that we go out there with. Like I host our our weekly dev streams that we do on Twitch. I do all that kind of stuff. Like what I like to tell people is that my job is primarily to translate from engineer to like normal person. Well, in a way, so what has uh, been the most difficult and what has been the easiest about transitioning into that job from being a dude who basically just writes about the industry? Sure. So the easiest part is definitely like actually the writing. Like the writing is hilariously easy now because I do less of it. So I'm less like drained of it. Like you probably know the more that you write, the more that it kind of like like you have a finite amount of, of literally words that you can put out and have be useful in over a period of time right and so like my reservoir of like writing is always full so like i can bang out whatever i need to write super quickly and it's great um so that part that part is very easy the hardest part has honestly just been how much more collaborative uh working at the studio is because like when i was an editor you know i'd work with 
you know, the, uh, whoever I was uh, doing a story on, if that involved, you know, a developer, a publisher, somebody I'd work with, somebody uh, ex- externally, I'd work with my editor or editors, uh, you know, internally, and and a layout artist or two, or maybe you know, maybe some like tech support or something, if it was if it was an online piece, and and that was it. Whereas like now, I work with everyone from the CEO to the QA guys, like on a regular basis. So, so just like <laughs> both allowing other people to impact my day to that extent and not going well, and also crazy. it's got to have a whole new – just the social dynamics of dealing with so many more people at so many more levels. I mean sounds like yeah. uh, you know, as a guy who's doing the, the writing side of things like, like you were doing, which is more solitary, sounds awesome. Like it sounds like, a, sounds like you make the, made the right call. It must be a lot of fun to work with so many different people. It is. I mean, one of the things that that I actually never believed about myself until my until after I got married, so like my, my mid twenties, is that I'm despite the fact that I am a huge gamer and I love to I love nothing more than to sit and just hole up with my PC and just play games forever. Like I am actually a huge extrovert, and so like working with so many people and being out there and like i love like whenever it's time to go do you know take a trip out to the partner studios because you know we have partner studios that we're publishing their stuff so like going out there and like meeting those guys and girls and just talking about stuff and getting out there like it's so much so the few times i've met you i've gotten a sense that you are the personification of what i call uh midwestern affability (laughs) <laughs> uh, now you are are you uh, so Game Informer w- was in Wisconsin? Are you or still is in Wisconsin? Minnesota. Oh, Minnesota. And, Minnesota. and that Minnesota is yes. uh, uh, one of the counties in Wisconsin. Am I am I correct? <laughs> I believe that's uh, what the the official designation uh, so, is. So yes. uh, now you you did make a move. So Stardock is in Michigan. Uh, so you moved right. from uh, from Minnesota to Michigan. Yes. And what was that yes. like? Um, it's really a lot more similar than you would think it's just sort of depressing because of the proximity of detroit because detroit has a lot of problems um and it's just like like culturally it's very very similar which is one of the things i actually really liked because i like living in the midwest but the trick to living in the midwest is that you have to live in a city if you don't live in a city it's terrible like the rural midwest is where just culture and fun go to die they are the, they are the absolute worst and i don't recommend it for anyone but cities are great because people are still like really nice and really approachable and like everybody – there's like the shared sense of like, I don't know, trials and, tri- and tribulations that comes with surviving the winters out here, right? So so like people are great and uh, Michigan is – it's like Minnesota, just like 10 degrees warmer. Okay, okay. Uh, and, but the weirdest thing was moving from Minneapolis, which is this awesome, booming city. Everything is going great. Like, it's got all these different industries that are really vibrant, and, you know, the, the university is there and everything. Moving from from Minneapolis to uh, where I live now, which is Plymouth, which is about halfway between Detroit and Ann Arbor. And, like, Michigan is just a mess, and Detroit's a mess. And it's like, that has a lot of sort of weird knock-on effects to – just like everything, like just local media and like the way that places operate and the attitudes that people have. So that has been the bigger mm-hmm. thing, actually. Uh, did you you took a family with you, right? You're already married at that point. Mm-hmm. Uh, mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I quit my job of ten years, moved a couple states over, had my first kid, uh, all in the space of like two months. Uh, by the way, how old is your child now? 
Well, well, she was born uh, when I, last August when we moved – shortly before we moved out here to Michigan. And so she's oh, about well, a year Oh, wow, a little tiny baby then. Okay, right. Yeah. Uh, and does your small. wife work? Uh, I mean I, I know she has probably uh, her work she cut would, out for her. She would right. love to. My wife would love to. Uh, you know, she had a – she – made the sacrifice of, of leaving her career in Minneapolis, which she really liked, uh, and joining, you know, coming out to Michigan so that I could follow the Stardock opportunity. Um, so she currently stays home with the kid because it's it's just hard sure. to find work, you know, as, as many people uh, know. Is, is so, your baby a boy or girl? She's a girl. Mm-hmm. She's a girl. Uh, and now – so – what I want to get into with you, Adam, is that you and I uh, have, have something in common recently. Uh, the, the last, uh, for me, seven, eight months, actually it's been over a year for me, um, you and I have both had a sort of a unique tribulation that we've had to deal with recently uh, that mm-hmm. I'd, I'd love to talk about with you. Um, and uh, if, if you're listening, you, you might know that I was absent from the podcast for several months. Uh, if you follow Adam, you might know that – now, did, did you – well, we'll get into this. But if you follow Adam, you might know that uh, he also had some health issues for a while. Uh, and this might sound boring or tedious to you, in which case I invite you to fast forward to the part at the end of the podcast where we're going to talk briefly about what Stardock is doing. Um, but otherwise, uh, Adam lets you and I talk about having cancer. Um, oh, and, let's. It's such a great subject to really you and know, it dig boy into. brightens up a room like nothing else. I tell you that. Uh, <laughs> well, right. well, so the good news That's is both right. of us are now. I, I presume, actually, I, you're. Are you technically like cancer free at this point? I mean, I, I think I can say we're both of us. We've had a good resolution of this. So, right. So no. So my uh, doctor doesn't actually consider me cancer free for I, three I, I, years. I'm in the same boat. Like it's I, like give me the word remission or something I can hang my hat on. And, and the, my right. oncologist doesn't right. want to do that. It sounds like yeah. Right. Right. So so no. So yeah. I mean it's that's that's kind of the the worst part of it is that you can do you know. You, you do whatever the treatment is, right? Like you listen to the doctors and, and you follow their recommendations because they treat a lot more people with cancer than, than I have cancer, right? And But like you still just don't know anything and so you just kind of go along with it and you just kind of do whatever you have to do and you hope. But I guess the long and the short of it, so for folks going into this conversation, uh, kind of a spoiler is both of us have been treated and the treatment <laughs> looks like it did as well as it could. For, for both of us so right so spoiler uh you know this has a, a at this point a happy ending i just want you to know that going in uh <laughs> but there is going to be some right. doom and gloom and uh and tedium and and sickness and misery uh that we're going to discuss here briefly uh yeah. so as i mentioned to you adam uh, i'd like to break the discussion into sort of four parts uh what was it like before you knew for sure you know how did you find out something was wrong uh what were those early doubts like uh that's the first part. The second part, uh, let's talk about getting the diagnosis. You know, when you finally hear the word cancer, what, what is that like? What was it like for you? Uh, the third part, I'd like to discuss the treatment that we both went through. And then after the treatment, and this is where we both are now, uh, what's the recovery been like? So those yeah. four topics, um, why don't you start off, Adam? Like before you were diagnosed, what was going on? That Was anything going on for you? Was it just something you got back in a test? Um, did you get something checked out? Sure. What, what happened with you? Yeah, so I had, 
Yeah, so I had this weird nosebleed that was like this really slow nosebleed that wouldn't go away. And so I went to a regular doctor and he prescribed a nasal spray and that didn't do anything. And then I went to an ENT, uh, which is a, a, an otolaryngologist uh, who specializes in ear, nose and throat stuff. And he, uh, you know, did the, did the like shove the camera up there and took a look. He's like, oh, yeah, there's something in there. Like he did that whole uh, it's from- oh, yeah. oh, yeah. So uh, – so he's like, oh, yeah, there's something in there. It's more than likely it's a polyp. Like these benign polyps are things that, that happen. He said that he's like he literally does this surgery like once a week to go in there and, and clean the stuff out. And so so I had I, I had one surgery uh, in let me let me remember when the heck this was. Uh, this was last August. And at that point, there was no reason I had my first. Oh, it's just this thing. I mean, was there any like lingering doubt in your mind or did he give you any worst case scenario about you know, it could be cancer. It's probably a polyp. Um, like at that point where you just think, yeah, yeah I got to yeah. get this minor surgery. No big deal. I mean, that's what I was hoping for. He did bring up that like, oh, yeah, you know, in a, in a very small percentage of these cases, uh, it can be cancer. But uh, but those are, that's really unusual. We don't really see much cancer in this area of the body. Um, you know, it's more than likely it's just a polyp. And, and obviously we'll do some testing once we once we remove the thing. But, uh, you know, so I wasn't super, super worried about it. I mean, I was it had been raised as a possibility, but. Um, but I wasn't super worried about it, but then there were, uh, then there was like the, the, so I recovered from the surgery. That wasn't that bad, uh, in terms of recovering from freaking surgery on your face is never fun. Is that when they, um, they but put you given, out, like are you down for it or are you awake and it's just up? Yeah. Okay. So you oh, yeah. are out. It's a surgical procedure that it's like, okay. Yep. Yep. And like I had, I had a bunch of crap in my nose and like the worst part was going in uh, like four days after the surgery and getting the gauze packs removed because he had put gauze packs in my sinus um, to to make sure that everything heals right, I guess, or whatever. And they had to pull those out. And these are like, like you know, th- those kind of inch inch square gauze pads. It was, a, it was a set of like eight or so of those, like folded in half, shoved into my sinus during the surgery. So they're completely All caked with nostril, blood. Because it was, it was, oh, my God. Oh, yeah. Wow. Wow. Oh, yeah. And, and so they had to, like, go in with, a, a, you know, the, it's like a scissors, but it's like a pliers, right? Like, up my nose and, like, pull those out. It was basically I was going to say, that's exactly recall, what I'm right? thinking of, is where they use the fake Arnold Schwarzenegger head to pull the, the tracker out of his nose. Right, right, right. yeah. Yeah, no, it, it was wasn't horrible. A fake Adam, so anyway, uh, Adam but, it was your actual head, yeah. That's right. That's right. So, so that was a bummer, but, like... So that wasn't that bad. I mean, the recovery from that surgery was only like a week, and I was pretty much back into it afterwards, and it wasn't that bad. But then, you know, I didn't get the the biopsy results for another two weeks after that. And then at that point, the biopsy came back, and, and you know, I went in to go talk to the ENT about it, and he's like, yep, so it's cancer. Okay. Uh, you need to go to the University of Michigan because I don't treat cancer patients, uh, but they'll take care of you. Bye. And I was like, great. All right. All right. So hold um, that thought because that's chapter two then. Um Okay. So for All me, right. I had um, just basically a swollen lymph node, and I thought, oh, I'm getting a cold or something, and it wasn't swollen up really big. It was just a, a lump on the side of my neck, um, and when it didn't go away after a couple of weeks, and I furthermore didn't get sick because I thought, uh, you know, it's a cold, it's a swollen lymph node. Uh, when yeah. it didn't go away for a couple of weeks, I immediately was like, uh-oh, you know, this is not a good sign. Um, it wasn't It wasn't huge. Uh but it was persistent. And the problem for me uh, is that I didn't have any health care. So I Ugh. immediately, and this was 
this was a little over a year ago. Uh, I immediately uh, signed up. You know, I went to healthcare.org. I did the whole Obamacare thing and signed up for that and then was immediately plunged into this morass of, of bureaucracy uh, where I, I got I got like put to some state agency and they sent me some card and I just kept trying to find out, okay, when can I see a doctor? You know, when can I just go to a doctor? When can I get a visit with a doctor? And they kept telling me, you got to wait for your paperwork. You got to wait for your paperwork. You know, you'll get something in the mail. Uh, so I, I waited literally like it's over six months um, with this, this lump in the side of my neck. Oh my God. One day, uh, I finally got someone on the phone who said, oh, no, no, you've been covered for the last uh, six uh, months. You know, you could have back in December, you could have gone in back in December. Um, oh, my God. That has got to oh, – I can't imagine well, that feels is, great. The thing, too, is that, uh, you know, my cancer was pretty advanced by the time it was diagnosed, and that's – all of that was going on. And it's my own fault for not having health insurance and for not – I mean, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't blame right. anyone else, so. but it, it was a – it was a – it's a huge part of why this was so, you know, why this was such a big cancer um, is that it took me really long yeah. to get it checked out. Uh, and so as soon as I got off the phone with that woman, um, I uh, I just randomly looked up an ENT, an ear, nose, throat physician on the Internet, um, and he turned out to be horrible. Um, he huh. was uh, – he's really old. He, he looks like uh, Christopher Lee in the Lord of the Rings movies. So he was like Dr. Saruman to me, and that was his absolute demeanor. Like he, he was really imperious. Oh, he didn't want me in his office. Um, he didn't use the nose scope on me, but instead what he used was um, like an old dentist's mirror, like a little tidy round mirror on a stick, and he would try to put it in the back of my throat, and when I would, ga- I would oh, gag God. on it, and he, he would get really put out with me. Um, so I went in for a visit like that where he just sort of checked me out and poked around. And what he said to me on that first visit, uh, well, wasn't much, but I finally asked him. I was like, well, let's, let's talk about what this could be. And he basically said, well, you know, we, we don't know. It could be some viral thing. Um, why don't you come back and we'll do some tests and uh, I'll send you to get this, uh, this CAT scan thing. Um, and I finally pushed him and I said, well, okay, what's the worst case scenario? Uh, and, and that's when I first heard cancer. Uh, and he and he finally Oof. said when I um, when I first got a CAT scan done, and and this was you know it would take a week to schedule the CAT scan, and then a week for the results to come back in. So time kept drawing out. Mm-hmm. But when he finally looked at the little mm-hmm. CAT scan, he said um, he said, well, I've never seen a configuration of your symptoms that didn't turn out to be lymphoma. Uh, and, okay. and let's do a biopsy. And furthermore, you know, we can do the biopsy right here in the office. Uh, I think I can get a good sample. <laughs> and and I okay. basically said, well, I don't, uh, you know, don't shouldn't you put me out for that? And he's like, no, no, I can give you a local anesthetic. We'll, we'll cut your neck open here. Uh, he didn't say that. He said, we'll do a small incision. And he did this weird, like, drawing his finger across his throat gesture. Uh, <laughs> and I was like, I'd really rather be sort of put under and do it sort of right. Um and again, he was really put out with me for that. He, I mean, he was like just so disappointed in me that I wanted to do it that way. Uh, but so uh, I booked, um, you know, I got booked in for this surgical visit uh, at UCLA. Uh, and, you know, I went in for that after being told, you know, I've never seen a situation like yours where it didn't turn out to be lymphoma. 
uh, and right. I, you know, and then I went in for the biopsy. Um, and in the meantime, because I'd heard the word cancer, but I hadn't officially been diagnosed, you know, I didn't know what to make of this. Like it was, there was this long period where I was pretty sure I had cancer because you also, I don't know if you went through this, Adam, but I, I, I went through this period where I was, of course, Googling stuff and, and Googling oh, yeah. things because that leads you to all these like worst case scenarios, uh, you know, I, I, that just you just drive yourself crazy doing that. I eventually just had to stop. Like I eventually was just like, okay, no more looking up this stuff on the internet. You, you're you're seeing a doctor now. It, you know, whatever's going to happen is going to happen. Yeah. You're just scaring yourself looking things up. Yep. Um, yeah, I I reached that pretty quickly. Like I'm, I'm I'm a big believer in not believing the internet, particularly when it comes to like technical disciplines of which medicine is is very much a technical discipline and so i just like i i did a little bit when i when i first got the diagnosis of uh you know it's it's a uh uh squamous cell carcinoma with sarcomatoid characteristics right like i i googled that and, and like tried to understand kind of what that was but other than that like i just i'm just going to talk to the doctor if i have questions i'll call the doctor or i'll talk to like Ugh, I am just not interested in trying to to do it's, that yeah, on my own because the internet is, is it lies it lies constantly and it is it's just full of people it's full it's like it's like going into a crowded room full of people who either have cancer and, and are trying to understand it people like yourself or people who have some sort of weird like homeopathic right. agenda around cancer treatment or people who are just straight up trolling and like going into the crowded room and shouting like, hey, anybody know about this? And you just – you get that quality of feedback back from it. It's just not right. useful. Uh, did you did you so, talk to your wife much? I mean you might – I mean uh, I imagine that oh, yeah. must have been a big part of it. Like what – because for me it was a very solitary experience. I didn't tell anyone until – you know, after – actually I didn't tell most people until I was about to undergo treatment. Um but you had your wife there. Uh, did that make it easier or more stressful? That's hard to say, right? Because, like, I mean, like, I've been married now for, like, seven-ish years. And, like, we are just such a unit at this point that, like, I kind of don't remember what it's like to not have her there. I have a really awesome marriage, by the way. So I, I – uh, uh, you know, I have nothing. I'm I'm definitely one of those guys who has nothing bad to say about about the institution. But uh, well, part of why um, I ask Adam is, it, I mean, so I I almost think being solitary about it was a bit of a like I'm not married, and part of my thoughts going through this because uh, early on, I mean, when you're told you have cancer, the next thing you think is, oh well, fuck, I guess I'm going to die soon. You know, that's the worst case scenario. Right. And part of oh, my yeah. thoughts going through that process were, you know, at least I'm not married. At least no one depends on me. Uh, and I can imagine right. for you, right. that no, must that have been part, uniquely stressful. Uh, that part was super hard. Well, because uh, – well, remember, I had just moved to Michigan a year previously, and my wife had given up her career. I mean not not given it up, but walked away from, from her career that was going pretty well in Minnesota to come out here with me. And it's like, Jesus, 
mean, <laughs> this is like the worst case freaking scenario. We've got this, we've got this year old baby and like, I mean, if I die, like what's going to happen. And I actually went through a, a period of really kind of like forcing myself to think about like, okay, well, what's the worst case scenario? Like if I die in like six months, cause that's something that like, right. you don't know when you get diagnosed with freaking cancer in your head, you don't know. And so I go, okay, well, if I'm going to die in six months, like, what can I do to, like, make this better and, like, or, 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 you know, mitigate the fallout of this horrible thing happening to my family? And actually going through that and, and, like, I played out the whole scenario and, like, you know, if I die, then, well, okay, so she probably sells the house, moves back to Minnesota, like, moves in with family, restarts her career, collects some life insurance to pay off some things. Like, it actually, like, playing out the scenario actually really helped me because it was like, okay, well, if I, if the worst, if worst does come to worse, like, my family is not going to be they're not going to be out right. in the cold. They're not going to be, you know, long-term screwed. I mean, yes, it would be horrible, but, like, they they would get right. through, right? They would they would make it. So so that was actually a big thing for me, especially in the man. For me, the worst part was like the part immediately following getting the diagnosis, because there was about a two week gap before I could see uh, the the woman who ended up being my my full you know full time I guess whatever uh, my proper oncologist between so like just to be able to get in to see her because uh that's a very narrow specialty right like ent oncologist and so in those two weeks when it's like okay i have cancer i have no idea how bad it is what the prognosis is what treatment is going to be like absolutely no clue those were right, the worst right. two weeks and I, th- that for me it was uh, uh you know after the the doctor did the biopsy he told me to go to UCLA to see a, an oncologist there, and there was like a month wait for me, uh, oh. which fortunately got trimmed down because I ended up going to a different place. But I, I remember, you know, mm. it's like, okay, yeah, you have cancer. Now, for any additional information, you've got to wait a month to see the oncologist. Uh, and that's just yeah. those weeks right there when, you know, because before you actually hear that, you can't help but hold out in the back of your head that, you know, maybe it's not – cancer maybe it's just something else it's maybe that viral thing that eventually you're going to get some sort of antibiotic for it um you know as low a percentage as the chance is at that point that's still in the back of your head but then once you get the results from the biopsy all of that is dashed um yeah right it's like nope it's it's cancer it's for sure like there's no there's no you know question about it the uh yeah, and so so when I went in and finally saw my oncologist, right? So you did have that two uh, weeks. And, and so that, met with her. Two weeks, you get the diagnosis, squamous cell carcinoma. Yep. In two weeks, go see this woman, right? Or, or man, it's, right? Okay. Right. And so so I went and saw my doctor, and she's she's great, actually. Like the I really like my oncologist. She's very like straightforward. She's very like uh, I don't know. She's just very patient focused but without but is is also very competent and very like confident in herself which is helpful to me as her patient you know like i i really like my doctor anyway um so we you know we went through everything and and she she reviewed my case and everything and then there there was like this this 
I don't know, it was like a three week or so period of doing just endless freaking tests. So for me, it was like, go and get a CAT scan. Okay, you did that. Now go do this other thing. Now get a PET scan, which is like, it's like a CAT scan, but different. And now get it, now do an MRI and now do a consultation with the neurosurgeon. I'm like, oh my God, MRI is probably I, the worst. I so yeah, almost yeah. freaked out during my MRI. Now, what, when you say they're the worst, what did was difficult about the MRI for you? For me, it was just how freaking long it was. So it was so long and so loud. And so the problem, so I have just a physically large head. Um, like my whole family does. We, just have, we, just, we are large headed folk. And so when you, when you go in an MRI and, you know, most people know, oh, yeah, that's like that tube thing and it sucks, whatever. It's, you're, you're shoved into a torpedo tube. Like you are a Spock being sent to go to the Genesis planet, except you're not dead. Right. But you're so you're locked in this little torpedo tube and they put this this plastic cage over your, yeah, over your head with like foam bracing in. So there's so your head is like braced with like foam and this like hard plastic cage. It is like literally screwed down into into this this table that goes into the torpedo tube. And so so the problem that I have with my large head is not that my head doesn't fit in the tube. My head fits in the tube. The problem is that my head is too big to allow for the over the ear protection. Oh, Inside the plastic cage, like those were pushing in on my head. I was like, no, 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 we can't do that. So all I was wearing was earplugs. And MRI machines are loud as hell. They are so loud. And you're just in this tiny tube with this like crazy. I mean, it's like, like if you've watched like spy shows, this is like, like there's a scene in, in uh, MI5 or Spooks, as it's known in, in the UK, where like this dude, this like terrorist is basically being tortured for information. Right. And like he's he's locked in this cell and he's like they, they have these like sirens blaring and like and, and he's locked in this uncomfortable position. And there's lights flashing and stuff and like that's basically the MI. Oh, Except you're locked in the tiny tube. So for me, it was, it was mainly the claustrophobia because I've gotten CAT scans before where they they roll you through the big uh -huh. donut and that's fine. But the MRI is definitely in, like you said, that that Spock Genesis project torpedo tube thing, where if you open your eyes, the mm -hmm. wall of it is like right in front of your face. You know, there's there's. Oh yeah, I. I had to do the whole thing well, with my eyes closed. Like, I actually – they have lights on the inside of the tube and, like, in the room. I was like, you need to turn as many of these lights off as possible so I can just close my eyes and not have this freaking wall two inches from my nose. The guy me that is uh, just try closing your eyes and not looking at it. And I, I, afterwards, I kind of was like, oh, well, that kind of is a much better way of dealing with it. It's like if you're up really high, don't look down. <laughs> um, you know, right. if you're, if you're yep, in a, closed up in a tube, don't leave your eyes open to see how close the wall is. <laughs> just keep right. your eyes closed. Right. Um, and then at that point, um, the noise for me, Adam, because I guess I had the ear things pressing in and earplugs, um, was in a way, uh, I don't know about reassuring, but it broke up the monotony because it would make different noises right. at different stages. And it was almost like being right. in some, like, uh, some art project post-industrial grunge <laughs> musical uh, performance art. Um because they're very like they're very like whoever came up like the, the birth of industrial music is like because yeah, somebody exactly. got an MRI because they're very industrial. They're very like sci-fi kinds of sounds. Uh, were you ever offered a uh, I think it was Ativan they offered me like because of claustrophobia. No. So were you ever offered that? Because that, let me tell you, the second time I had to get an MRI after all of my treatments, they just gave me an Ativan and I couldn't have cared less. And I probably slept through it as far as I remember. Um, <laughs> 
Yeah, no, I actually wasn't. Uh, they brought it was brought up afterwards. I was like, oh yeah, well if you're having problems with it, we could have given you that, but you did great. And I was like, yeah, well, I, I I guess I did great because I wasn't screaming at you, but it's not like it was fun. But actually, no, I, I was prescribed Ativan for to help me sleep during my treatment, which we'll get to in a minute. Um, but just just solely as a sleep thing. Uh, and an anxiety thing. And I actually have to go in for a follow-up here in a couple of weeks and I am totally lorazepamming it up for the next one. Cause screw that. Is that like Ativan? That's, that's oh, what Ativan you is. Know, it's, it's, it's just, that's like the chemical okay, name or whatever. Another thing that's been difficult for me is all drugs have two names. I mean, I, I would take Tylenol like maybe Ooh, once yep. a year. Otherwise I don't know much about drugs, but every drug has two separate names. And I found that very confusing most of the time. Yeah. Uh, by the way, uh, so one of the one of the most pleasant dreams I had uh, in this uh, sort of pre-diagnosis and then diagnosis pre-treatment thing, uh, because for me, I don't, I, I don't. It sounds like there wasn't any outward manifestation for you of your cancer. Like, did you have to? Did the nosebleeds no, continue? No. no, the nosebleeds eventually went away once I finally healed from the surgery. Oh, you mean after the? Oh, the the when they thought it was just a polyp before they when they okay right right so for me I always yeah. had the lump in my neck that you know if you didn't know to look for it you might not notice it but over time it got bigger and then eventually it spread mm-hmm. to it eventually got into five different lymph nodes and it, it eventually got where the whole side of my oh neck my was swelled up um, and it was very conspicuous but Oof. in the in the early processes uh, or the early stages I distinctly remember having a dream. And it was one of those dreams where, where it feels real, you know, and you wake up and you were like, oh, yeah. And then you gradually realize, fuck, that was just a dream. Um, but I had a dream one night where the lump was actually I had just forgotten that there was an olive pit under my tongue. And so I was just feeling around with my tongue. And I was like, what is that? Oh, it's an olive pit from when I ate an olive. And I spit it out and the lump was gone. Uh and that just kind of speaks to the size of the lump and the persistence of it is that I just dreamed one night yeah. it was an olive pit that I'd forgotten about. Uh, and now everything is fine because I just spit it out. Um, That's so, funny. uh, so you get diagnosed. Um, yeah. They, uh, the, and, and let's talk now about the treatment that you went through. Yeah. So, so I had my like two week period of, of going through all these tests, um, so that they can, you know, as, as accurately as possible, understand what's going on before going in. Um, and so, so my cancer's diagnosis is stage three, um, which is better than stage four, but still not great. Um, and that was mostly because of the location of the tumor, which is in my ethmoid sinus, which is up basically, uh, off the corner of your eye. Uh, up, up pretty high in the in your in your sinuses there in your face. Um, and have they said much about like uh, has it spread to other things besides the sinus? No. Uh, okay. No, no. So that was one of the the really good things is that so the the that was what the scans were for too was to determine the extent of it and, and had it spread. Um, and it didn't look like I mean none of the scans are perfect, right? Um, which is which is one of the things I want to get into uh, about about just the way that you sort of deal with the diagnosis and everything and the treatment. But uh, so none of the skins are perfect, but like everything, like everything that I've gone through or all the results, I guess, that I've gotten since the initial really awful, shitty diagnosis of freaking cancer in my face, everything else has been pretty much as good as 
as you could hope for, right? Like it hadn't really spread anywhere. The surgery went well. Like so, so my so what I was getting at is that so I was diagnosed with stage three, and so with a stage three or stage four, they they always want to go with two different uh, treatment vectors or true or forms of treatment, right? Is the way my oncologist explained it to me. Um, and so for mine, they were going to do a surgical recession uh, where they they go in and they physically cut it out. Um, and, and then also radiation. So I didn't do chemo, but I had surgery and then radiation. So I had a second surgery, um, in which they, they went in and, and that was like a 12 hour surgery. I was, I was under for 12 hours. Um, I was in the hospital. I was in ICU for a, a full day. Uh, and I was in the hospital for two more days after that. But so they went in and, and they took, uh, they do margins, right? They do margins around where the original tumor was found, where they, where they pull out, uh, 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 tissue samples and they, they test them actually during the surgery. Like they, they actually like the science of it is actually really cool. Like they can, they can pull out the samples, test them for cancer and, and all that stuff. Like while they're still and doing sort of the surgery, dynamically which, which determine the extent of the surgery. Is that the idea? Right. Kind of. Yeah. Um, and so, so all those margins came back negative, which is great. So like, so they didn't find any more cancer after, because, because my first surgery, they removed the bulk of the tumor. Right. Um, and then the second one, they went in and, and took some more margins around everywhere that, that it had been found. And those are all negative, which is awesome. But that, as they explained to me, that doesn't actually mean that there's no cancer there because cancer is, we're talking about individual cells there's however many million cells in a cubic centimeter of tissue, right? And so it's all it's all sampling, right? They're doing a sample. They didn't find any. That's great, but it doesn't necessarily mean that it's not there. Um, so so I had the surgery and then the hospital stay, and that sucked. My hospital stay was well, just because awful. you were in I had pain, a, or because you weren't they weren't taking good care of you, or what was awful about it? Uh, well, it was because I. The, the pain med that they had me on, I turns out I had a really uh, bad reaction to, but we didn't figure out that it was a pain med until like way later. So like I was in a lot of pain and I, and I was vomiting like constantly. I couldn't keep any food down where was at the all what, what because hurt? of oh, my whole face. I mean, just just like my whole face. It was it was not fun. Um, so uh so the the pain med was making me nauseous, which was making me throw up everything that I ate. And so like I was in a lot of pain. I had to start refusing the pain med be, so that I could get some food down because I was just stuck in this awful cycle of like, oh, I'm in a lot of pain. Can you give me some, some you know, uh, uh, painkillers for that? I'd take those and then I'd throw everything up. The pain would be slightly better, but then I'd be really uncomfortable because I was so hungry and I couldn't sleep. I didn't sleep more than like, 20 minutes at a time for like the entire time I was in the hospital. It was just, it was really unpleasant. And it was a lot of like nurses, like not believing me when I would tell them shit. Like I did not like the nurses that I had because it was like, I'm really nauseous. This pain med is making me nauseous. They're like, Oh no, this one doesn't cause nausea. And I'm like, well, I, I realize that's what your brochure says, but I don't particularly care because I, now I'm going to throw up on you. One of them I actually did throw up on, so that was a little bit vindicating, I guess. Now, does this mean that, like, that when somebody asks you, are you allergic to any medications, that you now have an answer, yes, I'm allergic to insert pain med here? Okay. I do. Uh -huh. I do. I finally okay. have one, which is so exciting. Because normally, yeah, <laughs> I don't have anything interesting to say to that question. Uh, yeah, so. Right. 
Right. No, I mean, I was I was so uncomfortable and so screwed up when I was in the hospital that like I eventually got them to give me some freaking Ambien so I could sleep because I just had not slept in so long. And like I sort of halfway dozed for about four hours on a on a fairly significant dose of Ambien. That, and that's like as far as much rest as I could get. Like that's how bad I was. And you know how hardcore Ambien yes, is, right? Yes. Like so – just to give you an example of, of how unpleasant that was. So anyway, so I did the surgery. I, I was recovered at home for another like three or four days after that. I only took a week off for the surgery, and then I was back to work. And then, and I presume, uh, so the, the radiation then is going to start after the surgery, right? It's not concurrent or anything, right? Yeah. Yeah, so the radiation was uh, – basically, the start of the radiation, uh, it ended up being – I can do the math in my head. It ended up being about four five weeks after the surgery because they wanted to let – because the radiation is, is a fairly right. traumatic process for the areas involved. And so they wanted to let kind of the sur- all the surgery healing happen first before starting and in I on the next At that thing. point, though, you're getting the good news about them not finding any uh, any cancerous tissue in the margins. Like there, there's – I did get that. Yeah. And like – and so I asked a lot of like, man, do we really need to do the radiation <laughs> now if, if- – all good news, and they're like, "Yes, we still have to do the radiation." I'm like, you really "I don't want to do the radiation." radiation. You really thought, "Hey, this is fine. We're done now, right?" That's that's what you were thinking. Uh, <laughs> well, it's like, "Hey, you didn't find any cancer, so it's gone, right?" Uh, no, that's not how it works. Unfortunately, so, I, uh, so part of what prepped me for this, I actually didn't have any surgery for mine. Mine was just uh, radiation and chemo. But my little sister, yeah. uh, almost exactly a year before me, had been diagnosed with early stages of breast cancer. And and she oh had God. surgery, and then again the radiation afterwards. Uh, and it seems like the radiation is is just not strictly preventative, but it's just to make sure that you know it's for, it's because right. you really want to be safe at that point. Uh, right. And the way the way that the radiologist explained to me, who also my radiologist was this tiny little German ancient German guy who had this amazing accent. He makes me really happy. Um, but the way that he explained to me is that radiation is actually more effective when it's working on smaller uh, incidences of cancer cells because it's it's good at killing individual cells, but it's not really good at the heavy lifting kind of part of getting rid of the cancer. Targeting. It's like specifically um, targeted uh, – yeah, exactly. Right. Yeah. Um, right. Um, oh, one of the things I didn't mention is that I when I went into my surgery, it was with the uh, possibility that I might lose my right eye. Oh, yeah, because you get uh, all the worst case uh, outcomes of like, like we have right. to tell you, you could lose your eye. Like, uh, wow. Right. 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 Because, well, because so there's this there's this bone structure. So you, the orbit of your eye is made up of a bunch of different bones, right? Like the basically your eye socket, the bone part of it. And. The bone that is kind of at the corner of your eye there by your nose uh, is very, very thin. And so they were really concerned that if it had eaten through – if the cancer had made it through that bone and into my eye socket, then it might be – like my eye might be compromised and they would just have to remove it. Um, So not even like, oh, if the surgery goes badly or whatever, this is one of the risks because you get a whole giant-ass page of those too. Right. It's like, oh, you could lose brain function and become a vegetable because we're operating near your brain. It's all like the le- – it's basically the, le- the EULA right, for exactly. surgery. Yeah. Right. Um, except way more like legally binding, unfortunately. Uh, but so you've anyway, got to be – you're, you're so, picturing yeah, so yourself was, with an eye patch at this point, I'm imagining. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I was just like, well, I mean I guess it's better than dying. Right. So here we go. Um, so so yeah. So there was, there was that. There was a lot of like – 
things could get way worse, but they didn't. Well, they just catch you up then on where I am, where I started my radiation. And let's let's talk about radiation treatment because I found that stuff uh, fascinating and horrifying and eventually weirdly um, soothing. Um, but before we get to that, uh, so I, I went through a whole ordeal before I even started my treatment uh, after I was diagnosed um, involving a dental situation. Uh because they knew they were going to have to do, uh, I was going to have to get heavy doses of radiation, basically from yeah. the, the bottom of my nose to the top of my throat. And one of the problems there is that if you need any dental work within years or so after getting that kind of radiation, it can be really difficult for bone to grow back. Um, so yep. one yep. of the things the doctor said to me was, look, before we start, you need to see your dentist. You need to see if there's any outstanding issues. And again, as a guy who didn't have any health coverage for the longest time, huh. I had a bad tooth. And my, my back right bottom tooth um, needed either a crown or uh, I'd been to see a dentist about it. And he'd tried to sell me on some $3,000 bionic tooth that I really didn't feel like paying for. So I was like, uh, no thanks. <laughs> yeah. um, so I went to see a dentist and I came with literally a note from my doctor saying, you know, please put him to the top of the queue. He is pending, you know, urgent treatment for, for cancer, aggressive cancer. Uh, and let us know, you know, let him know if anything needs to be done, because if so, it's going to have to delay his, his treatment. So she looked at my tooth. Um, I had a weirdly placed sort of cavity in one of my top teeth. Um, and she basically said, you know, there, there are options, there are crowns, there are tooth implants that take a while. Uh, we could pull them. And for the sake of expediency, because at this point, I also, you know, I was in that whole, am I going to die? Is this, how, how serious is this? I, I basically just told her, you know what, pull both teeth. Um, yeah. So I got uh, my back right, you know, the very back teeth on the top and bottom on the right side of my mouth uh, got pulled. And there's nothing there, and it still feels weird to my tongue. Um, but it, it was a little <laughs> miserable to go through that, is getting teeth pulled. Yeah. Um, so I got two teeth pulled. Um, I, I, I no longer was seeing Dr. Saruman, of course. I got, you know, he told me, <laughs> go to this oncologist at UCLA. It was going to take a month for me to get in there, uh, while talking to his assistant. And by the way, like doctor's assistants, uh, I find are awesome people, oftentimes better than the doctors. Uh, oh, yeah. You know, technicians, by the way, I love technicians. Technicians are awesome. Um, so while talking to the assistant on the phone one day, uh, she, she noted my address and she said, well, why are we sending you to UCLA? It's like an hour and a half away from you. There's, there's a hospital up in Glendale we've sent people to. Why don't you go there? And I was like, no, I'd, I'd love to. Uh, and they got me in like within, within a few days. Um, and it was a little tiny, uh, cancer, uh, like treatment wing. It was like a, a building outside of the hospital, um. Which at first I thought, oh, you know, the, you get special treatment here because they have their own wing. But I think I later found out that uh, it, was a, it was a very small, minor operation. Uh, oh, and then okay. the woman I went to see, by the way, I don't know if you ran into anything like this. Like you mentioned how charmed you are with your German doctor. Uh, the, yeah. the first woman I went to see at this little tiny operation at, at a hospital in Glendale, Adam, it was so distracting how beautiful she was. I could not. She looked to me like a cross between Olivia Munn and Lucy Liu, and I just could not pay attention when she was talking to me. I, I was just I. Uh, 
but and she was also <laughs> she was very young. She was very enthusiastic. I would see after she talked yeah. to me, I would look down at her notes, and she would write with this big looping handwriting that looked like um, you know, a sorority <laughs> girl's like a notice. It was, uh, yeah, and, yeah. but you know, she she did that no scope on me, uh, and it was horrible. Like she kept banging uh-huh. it into the back of my throat, and um, <laughs> you know, she meant well, but I just didn't feel like. It was top line care. Uh, yeah. So one of the things I had done when I first got diagnosed uh, is I just uh, because again I didn't really you know I'm not married I have some close friends and I didn't want to tell them yet you know I didn't want to talk to my family about it yet I wanted to know exactly what was going to happen what was you know I wanted to know exactly what to tell people I needed more information and that would involved you know I wanted to make sure I got my diagnosis and a treatment plan before I started sharing this with people. Um, so one of the first things I did, I just Googled cancer support group, uh, and I started going to a support group in Pasadena, which is near where I live. And at the support group, they told me about a a dedicated cancer hospital here in Los Angeles called City of Hope. And I was eligible to be seen at uh, City of Hope. So I went there and that's where I eventually was treated. Uh, that's where all the doctors were fantastic, um, you know, for the first time since feeling this weird lump, once I went to City of Hope, I just got this sense of reassurance. Like, you know, th- this is the place oh. I need to be. These are the people who will really sure. take care of me. Um, sure. So, and they're the ones too that said, you know, get get this dental stuff taken care of. When I would when I would sit down with this this beautiful woman uh, who looked like Lucy Liu crossed with Olivia Munn, she would tell me things like. Um, uh, oh, you might have problems with your saliva. Let me remember to diet to uh, to prescribe you this this drug that helps you make saliva, which, by the way, was so far in the future and such a minor aspect of what I had to worry about. Like, right. like thinking back, I'm right. like, why is she telling me that? Like, why is she making notes about something that's not really going to be an issue until I'm far in the treatment? You know, I want to know basics about like survival rates and and possible outcomes. Right. And she's worrying about me making saliva. You know, and she's telling me things like uh. You know, the saliva drug might make you perspire more. And, you know, she's overloading me with, with weird <laughs> minutiae as it occurs to her. Um, and sure. I'm sure from her perspective, she thought she was being thorough, and I appreciate that. But once I went to City of Hope, right. you know, they had a very – it was like enrolling in college. You know, there were orientations. <laughs> there, were, there were these handouts that I was given. Uh, I was sent around to different doctors, almost like a class schedule. Uh it was this whole, uh, this just this huge, vast, efficient organization that I felt like I'd been inducted huh. into. Um, That's yeah. awesome. Yeah, I went to I went to University of Michigan, which is which is I mean, University of Michigan Health is like this enormous thing. Um, but they're actually they are they're very very good um, and very very sort of regimented with particularly in their cancer treatment. Um, so I've actually like. I, I'm very, very uh, glad to have have gone to a very top notch uh, facility, and like they have uh, to get to start to get into kind of the radiation and stuff. Um, the it, it was all like actually really easy to get. Like, I mean, it was a pain in the ass because Ann Arbor is a half an hour away for me, so it was like I was driving a half hour to radiation in the morning. And I would have my radiation treatment, and then I would drive a half hour back to work. And then I would work a full day, and then I would go home. But I mean, think about um, how, how relatively easy we have it. Like, imagine being being oh, diagnosed sure. if you were to live like in some smaller town or out in the boonies somewhere. Um, 
Oh, yeah. People move yeah. regularly, like move short term to Ann Arbor or to, you know, just in, in this locale. But they move to yeah. get treatment. Like, yeah, like you're displaced from your home because you, you have to be close enough to do this once a day. Yeah, yeah. Right, right. So so anyway, so that worked out OK. Um, but radiation was weird because like so everybody it, it's you kind of I, I kind of got two different uh, uh, perspectives on it as I was going into the treatment, because so on the one hand, there's everybody says, oh, you know, radiation is not nearly as bad as chemo. Like it's not great fun, but like you'll get through and it won't be that bad. And then. Uh, on the other hand, I have like my other doctors saying like, well, you know, here's the list of symptoms and problems that you're going to have from the radiation. It's a freaking mile long. Um, so it's like you kind of get it from both sides. And it was it was weird because for me, the radiation kind of it, it was kind of both sides of that because so I was in I, I did six weeks of radiation treatment five times a day or five, five times a day, five, five days a week. Uh, and at the beginning, it wasn't that bad. Like I go in, get radiation, go home, whatever. It's fine. Um, starting about three, starting about halfway in, I started to feel it, right? And and so I started to get a little more uncomfortable up in my nose, and I started to get really tired. Um, like like I said, I was working full time, and I would literally like get up, go to radiation, go to work, come home, eat, and fall asleep. Like. That's all I could do. And I started getting getting to the point where it's like I was hitting a wall at like 3 p.m. You know, at work because it was just like I just had no energy for anything. Uh, and so that that started to be, to be a problem. That just got worse and worse and worse. Eating got a lot harder um, as as treatment went on. Like I started I basically was on a liquid diet from about week five. So from uh, until about three weeks after my treatment stopped. Um, because radiation, it's like, it's like, it's just this cumulative damage that's being inflicted on your body. Right. And so, and your body is trying to heal it. And so it's actually the last day of treatment is like the nadir of how crappy you feel because you then, it then takes that much longer to climb back out of the well. Um, and so, so yeah, so radiation was kind of a weird experience. I know you had more issues with the mask. Than so you I. had to do the mask as well, right? They put the, yeah. I did. So I explain did. what the mask is for folks who may not know. <laughs> so the mask is, so you go in and you have what's, uh, what's called like a reference uh, uh, scan or, or, or similar. And you go and you basically go in and get a CAT scan of your head. But before you get the CAT scan, they put this, they, they make your mask and it's, my experience was laying down on this table. It's like a moving table, right? Like, cause you're getting, it's basically a CAT scan. And I had like five people surrounding me putting this, like this wet, this warm, wet cloth. It's kind of like cheesecloth, but, but it's really wet. Thick, it, really it's, thick, really thick cheesecloth. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's, it's warm and wet and it's like, it's like body temperature, right? It's like, it's like 85 degrees or whatever. So it's warm, but they put it and they just mush. It's like having five people just slowly mush that down onto my head. So it's like super skin tight over your like eyes, over your mouth and nose. Yep. yep. Oh yeah. Yeah. And it's like, and you just have to lay there with it. And that part was weird and gross. And I was just like, Oh, I don't know about this. And so, so you do that and you have to lay there with it for like 15 minutes so it can like harden, right? Because that's this material, right? It's, it's, it's pliable when it's wet and then it hardens when it, as it dries. Um, and so you have to and, – and they're like drawing on your face with Sharpies and shit and like ugh. Um, and, then, and, then, and then you go away. 
and then you come back the next week to exercise. Now, how, how big, like, how far on your face did your mask go over your chin? Like, how far down did your mask go? Down, it well, it was full head, so up over the top of my head and down, uh, down to about three inches below my. Oh shoulders. yeah, yeah. Okay, so you got a, a huge one like me as well, then, because mine went almost yep. down. Yeah, a little bit farther, but definitely like it was over my shoulders as well. Like when I would go in, I would yep. have to take my shirt off. They would lay the thing over me. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yep. Take the, yep. take the shirt off. Put on the gown. Lay down on the table. Bring the gown down. So you did, you did, yeah. get, so, like, if you were claustrophobic about, about the MRI, the mask, like when they were doing the mask over you, that didn't bother you? So, so getting the mask fitted wasn't fun, and I didn't love that. And I wasn't really super claustrophobic about the MRI. Like I got through it, it and I didn't have a panic attack. Like the MRI, yeah, yeah. It was more the noise and just the, the how long you're stuck there. Um, no, so the mask actually – like the, the getting it fitted sucked. But once I started the treatment and you go in and like – so you go in and you check in and, and you get assigned to a machine because where I was getting treated, there's like six different uh, radiation machines because uh, they treat a lot of patients. And so you sign in. You you put your gown on. You go to the waiting room and you wait until the tech comes out and calls you in and you lay down on the on the machine and they, and they come and they put the mask over you, right? And because – and the reason for the mask is not because – uh, it's super fun to do, but because like the radiation is actually really, really tightly targeted to wherever your radiologist wants to shoot radiation into your head. Um, and especially like for me, you know, it's it's that's right up by your optic nerve and your brain and all this other stuff. And so like that's, uh, uh, you know, an issue that you, you can't be moving around. <laughs> so so you're, you're 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 basically tied down really tightly to this table. But then like. The dry mask, you know, because they cut eye holes and, and a nose hole and a mouth hole um, out of the mask. So so you're not, like, totally stuck. Uh, I mean, you are totally stuck, but at least you can open your eyes and stuff. Um, having that over me actually didn't really bother me, like, laying there. And it's partially because the radiation treatment itself is only, like, 10 minutes. Oh, you got through. So, so for it was, me, it was, my, every radiation treatment I did, they would start with a preliminary scan, and then they would stop and look at the charts and then they would say, okay, everything mm -hmm. looks good. We're now going to start the treatment. So all of my treatments mm -hmm. were basically 10-minute scan, you know, three to five minutes where they look at the charts where nothing is happening, and then 10 minutes of mm -hmm. actual treatment. Okay, I did forget about the scan, but the scan was pretty quick. The scan was only one spin of the machine because it's like this its like this crazy like HAL 9000 thing that spins right. around your head uh, as you lay on this table. But the scan part was only one spin, and then – they would look at the, the, the scan. It would only take them like two minutes, three minutes to get through that. And then I had about a 10-minute treatment after that. So I guess I was in the mask for more like okay, 15 right, to 20. Right. Um, but it wasn't – I mean it wasn't – like I didn't have any big problems with that part of the treatment. It was really the when the symptoms started piling up as I got later. And so so the thing with radiation, like I said before, is that it gets – it just gets worse as you go on, right? And – what happened with me is I kind of got into this bad sort of spiral where I was having trouble eating. I was having trouble drinking. So I was kind of starving and dehydrated the whole time. When you're in radiation, like they told me like I actually needed about something like 5,000 calories or 4,000 calories or something insane a day as to, to maintain weight. And a certain amount, um, like for, I was also I, given like a certain amount of protein. Like that, that was one of the people I saw. Oh, yeah, yeah, I, had a, I had a dietitian who would every yep. now and then like randomly accost me. And it was almost like getting called into the principal's <laughs> office. And she would ask me, okay, tell me everything you you ate yesterday. And she would do a little chart. Oh, wow. And she would calculate, you're not getting enough calories. 
you know, she would chastise me. She would then give me different options for eating things. But yeah, you're, they expect you to have a certain number of calories, a certain amount of protein, which helps heal the yep. tissue. Yeah. Yeah. Yep. Yep. And, and so like for me, I, I, you probably got more scrutiny on that part, maybe just because of the facility you were at, but also because, I mean, you, you're a skinny guy to start with, right? Like I was not a skinny guy to start with. So like I ended up losing like 25 pounds, um, over the course of the radiation, but I also had 25 pounds to lose. Now I lost it faster than anybody wants to do. And I actually ended up in the emergency room with some like dehydration and weird stuff going on. But, uh, um, and I actually went in several times toward the end of the radiation just to go get saline yeah. fluids, yeah, just to get too. fluids IV. Because you can't, because you can't um, drink. Yeah, I, yeah I, you're I, basically sitting there dehydrating, so they they pump water into yep. your veins to hydrate you. Yeah. <laughs> yep. Yep. And that sucks because it's a freaking hour per bag, and like I'm trying to still work like full time during this. Ugh. So so anyway, I mean, fortunately, my startup was was really really cool and very supportive through everything, which is really so, great. So the the, uh, the thing that bothered me about the mask was, uh, I because I don't think I'd ever been claustrophobic, but that first time they're fitting me with the mask, I distinctly remember they tell you, you know, it's going to be over your face, it's going to be tight, uh, you know, we're gonna we just have to fit it on you, and and I'm like, okay, no big deal, I can take this, and. You know, having never been claustrophobic in the past, I didn't think much of it. Uh, I hadn't had an MRI at that point. Um, so they put the mask over me, and it's warm, and they're pushing it down. And I'm like, okay, I can take this. And they push it down, and it's tight up against my face. You know, I can't see anything. I can breathe okay. It's porous. Um, and, and I'm lying there, and they stop pushing it down. And I'm like, okay, they, they should let me up now, right? And I didn't realize that it has to cool for, you know, like 15 minutes. And I was like, uh, well, can I get up now? And they're like, no, no, we, we need this to cool. It's, you know, it's a little bit longer. You're doing fine. They're very reassuring, by the way. I love that about it. Uh, uh-huh. And so I'm lying there. And, and, and for me, claustrophobia is this weird thing where there are competing voices in your head. And one of the voices in your head is saying things like, you know, what if your nose itches? What if you have to turn your head? What if, what if you really need to sit up? What if you have to sneeze? Um, and it's all these like weird doubts kind of bubbling up. And then on the other hand, you're like, you know, I'll be fine. Nothing bad is going to happen. And these two voices are talking to you. And claustrophobia is where the, the doubtful voices start to get louder and more overbearing. So I'm sitting there thinking, OK, well, I can't get up for a while. I'll just wait it out. And then this little scary voices are starting to get louder. And so I said to the people in the room with me, I said, um, I think I'm panicking, <laughs> and it, it was that. It was kind of that. Uh, uh, like I, I didn't assert that I was panicking. I wasn't sure. I just sort of uncertainly announced that I think I may be panicking. Uh, and a woman came over and held my hand, which is just the sweetest thing. Uh, and she was like, you know, you'll you'll be up soon, and you can go home, and you can you can have a meal, and and you can see your roommate and your animals. And I was like, how did she know I had a roommate? <laughs> oh, right, I was talking to her before. Um, which just was cool to me that she was like listening to what I was saying about myself. And she remembered, you know, that I had a dog and a cat yeah. and a roommate who'd been super helpful through all this. Uh, so, yeah. and, and I, I had a little bit of that too, over the radiation treatment because that mask, you know, again, sits tightly over you. I got used to it. Um, and eventually, as I mentioned to you earlier, it, it became kind of weirdly soothing to me to just have to sit there and, and meditate quietly, you know, for, for 20, 25 minutes. Um, mm-hmm. 
Yeah, I didn't – like I said, I didn't have a big problem with it. You know, I was like, go in, lay on the table. They put the mask down. It's like, yeah, okay, I'm going to lay here for the next right. you know, 20, 25 minutes. It's going to be fine. Like it's it's a little bit of – it's kind of reassuring. It's like I don't have to do well, anything And furthermore, something right is now. being done. Like you get this sense that you know right. the lasers are in there shooting away the cancer. You know, there's people in that room yep. who are actually doing something now. Uh, yeah, 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 for sure, for sure. Yeah, the um, so so that was that was radiation and like, uh, so my radiation actually finished on December 23rd. Uh, was my last day, and I was pre- I was like my December and January and really November through February, the absolute most physical discomfort I've ever been in my life. Like I was just I was not having fun. Um. And it's it's crazy to me now, like that I can be here, like podcasting with you and like having good energy and like being able to you know talk through stuff and think about stuff at seven thirty at night. Like this would have been an absolute pipe dream in January. Like I would have been like, no, absolutely not. I need to go to bed. It really um, is kind of amazing what it does to just basically like sap the life out of you and how gradual and insidious it is. Because mine mine went on for yeah. eight weeks. I had an eight week course. Um, and those first four weeks, I was like, this is nothing. I can totally take this. And they're even yep. telling you, yep. you know, it's going to get worse as it goes along. And I'm like, yeah, this is nothing. Yep. Fine. I, you know, bring it on. Uh, and there's even, yep. again, because this idea that they're, they're treating the cancer. And by the way, they were very clear with me early on uh, that that my treatment was to cure it. You know, not to, okay. not, not to just uh, make it smaller, not to make me more comfortable because there are different kinds of treatment for cancer. Yeah, yeah. That don't involve yes. curing it. Yes. And early on, I remember a woman sitting down and saying to me, you know, looking me in the eye and saying, it's very important that you know we're here to cure you. And I don't get to say that to as many of my patients as I would like, but I'm saying it to you. Um, and, you know, I was given a percentage. Like there was – and it's funny looking back over some of the paperwork because I had to go through this long – you know, just my, my health care because it was like – state health care and it got transitioned to an HMO and all that's hugely messed up. I got all this paperwork for a hearing that I had to do. Uh, and looking back through all the notes, uh, it's really amazing reading different doctors' takes on things like the percentage chance of it being cured. And what's oh, amazing bet. too is that the only one I really remember is the lowest number. You know, one of the oncologists <laughs> said you know, there's a 60% chance we'll be able to cure it. That's the one I remember. More than the various 70s or 80s or the almost certainties. You know, I remember that guy, 60%. You know, the lowest number is the one that stuck right. out in my head. Uh, yeah. Right. So, um, uh, and yeah, so it's so insidious how, you know, by week, for me, you know, 6, 7, and especially 8, just how, how oh, yeah. far downhill you've fallen at that point. Uh, it is. It's like it's. It's weird to me because like it's you. For me, I almost didn't notice it sneaking up on me, and then all of a sudden, it felt like all of a sudden it's like, oh my god, I am so tired all the time, and like I can't eat anything and I can't drink anything. Like I was, I was surviving on like protein shakes and you know smoothies that my wife would make for me, and not very much of that. I mean. I like I lost 25 pounds in like three weeks. Like that's not something that yeah, you should yeah. do, right? Like, and I know you you had issues with that as well. Like I so I, I'm know. still down weight. So I am still having uh, just the recovery, which we'll get into in a second, has uh, has ironically been the the toughest part for me, and it's going really slowly. Uh, I, I lost 40 pounds, and I'm still down those 40 pounds. Ooh. I mean, the, oh, uh, 
and and it's all muscle mass too, which is weird because, you know, I was never a, like a really buff guy, but I, I you know I used to run and I, I had pretty muscular legs and all that is gone and there's no like I don't have biceps anymore, which is weird to look at and to feel. Uh, yeah. When I when I lie in bed, and I lie on my side my legs don't fit together the way they used to because that muscle isn't there anymore and it's just odd um the upside though by the way man i can fit into a pair of little skinny jeans like nobody's business my my waistline is awesome it is it is just awesome to look at like i kind of like lifting up my shirt and seeing how taut that is there uh and i've not had that for you know 10 years so that's been fun Uh, so for, for me also the uh the, I had uh, three sessions of chemotherapy, which were concurrent with the radiation. Um, and the chemotherapy was weird because you go in, and for me, it's, it was an eight-hour, uh, and it wasn't an ordeal. It was just eight hours of kind of tedium because what happens is mm. uh, the, 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 subst- the, the drug they use on me is called cisplatinum, uh, and it, it's used to treat head cancers, neck cancers, and it's just this terrible, terrible toxin. That in the past would just – they would give it to people, and then the people would stay in the hospital for days at a time just vomiting copiously. Uh, But what they do is uh, they would take me in, and they would uh, just hook me up to a bag. Uh, I got my own room because most people who come in for chemo aren't there for eight hours, so I got the big room for the guy who has to be there all day. my uh, A couple of my closest friends who went through this with me, a lot of times they would come out and spend the whole day with me. Um, and so it took so long because they first have to hydrate me, then they have to give me the gross toxin stuff, and then they have to flush it out of my system with more fluids to keep it out of my, I, I think my kidneys. Um, okay, so sure. the actual chemo I was getting was just like an hour process, but the, the hours before and the hours after were to keep it from doing too much damage. Um, and then okay. furthermore, the days after where most people would just be vomiting their, their heads off, uh, I had a um, like three different kinds of anti-nausea medication that I would take in overlapping patterns. So at oh, any given man. time, there were like two anti-nausea medications that were supposed to be working on me. And the thing is, they worked. Um, so the chemo didn't feel bad bad at all like it 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 was relatively easy to go through uh but you know by the time i got my second chemo uh treatment i was starting to feel the effects of the radiation and by the time i got my third one you know i literally there there were there were i think there were literally two weeks where i was unable to eat anything uh and the only nutrients i got were intravenously um and it was after that that i had to get uh, a stomach tube implanted and and that's how I eat now is I take nutrients through that silly thing. Um, but so so I the chemo was relatively easy. The radiation, I say it was easy. I, I'm not sure how much of that, you know, I attribute to the radiation, how much of it was the chemo. Yeah. Um, so, yeah, so those eight weeks for you or six weeks for you, you, you come through you're, you're at the end of your, your treatment, the eight weeks for me. Uh, I, I remember – looking forward to that moment and thinking how awesome it would be when I'm going to go in and get my last treatment. But by the time I went in to get my last treatment, I just felt so shitty that there was, there was no sense of rejoicing or hallelujah. I'm here. There was just this, let me just go home and lay down. Yep. 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 I had the exact same thing. Like, I mean, in, in your treatment, I think was rougher than mine. 
uh, in a lot of ways. I mean, you didn't have the surgery to deal with. The surgery sucked. Um, but like, but yeah, I mean, even at the end of my six weeks, it was it was exactly the same thing. It was just like, whatever, just do it, just so I can just get out of here because I'm yeah. just tired. And, and I felt like the, the technicians that I got used to seeing, like I was so happy early on to see them and they were so – and I just felt like such a schlub. Like I didn't even feel like I got a proper goodbye. Uh, and I right. kind of was like, I don't I don't care. I mean you guys have been great, whatever, but I just feel too awful to shake your hand and say goodbye. And they were great about it. You know, they, they shook my <laughs> hand. They were like, congratulations. They give, the, they give the patients a little medal that you can wear and they put it on yep. me. Um, that's way cooler. I just got a stupid oh, certificate. See, well, yeah, and I, I didn't I, – I kind of – feel guilty saying this but before i left the hospital i was just like fuck this metal and i took it off and threw it away like i just felt so <laughs> awful um that's one of the yeah. things too that i've found adam and i don't know if this is the case for you uh like i'm generally a very good-natured person but one of the things that's that's happened through all of this through the treatment and the difficulty of the recovering like one of the things that's really hard for me to get used to uh is that feeling shitty just puts me in a bad mood um, oh yeah, and I'm kind of taken aback by that because I've, you know, even getting the diagnosis, uh, and even the uncertainty where I wasn't didn't want to talk to people about it, like I was capable of putting myself in a good mood around other people, but but when your body is falling apart, when there are things going wrong, and and when you just feel like sick, uh, you, I I don't think you, I, I just can't help but be in a bad mood a lot, and that really sucks. Yeah, the the thing with when I was at kind of my nadir with the treatment and everything, the, the, the problem with like my mood and everything is just that you just feel shitty all the time, just all the time. Cause you're hungry and you can't eat and you're thirsty and you can't drink and you're tired, but you can't sleep. And it just sucks all the time. And it's just, it's, it's just, this grinding just sort of like oh my god and like in in it's it's almost worse like in the right after it ends it's just like okay can i get better now but you still have like weeks and weeks of recovery before your body really heals it and I, it also it and just so, makes me really appreciate like if you are a caregiver to a cancer patient or i guess anybody who's really oh sick gosh. um I mean, that's got to be so difficult. And I just, the people who are willing to just be around me and just be with me and, and put up, you know, with whatever crappy mood I'm yeah. in, that was just so helpful. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And that was, I mean, yes, about, about going through stuff with the wife before. And like, I mean, she was so amazing in not just in doing things like, like, uh, you know, being there for me or talking or whatever or making me food and stuff which she which she did all that and it was amazing but like just to have somebody who's there all the time yeah. like that was the biggest thing for me like like just to have someone who I knew was going to be there when I got home and she was going to be there when I woke up and like she she was not she didn't have she wasn't putting any demands on me or anything it was just she was just there like that was amazing uh, so, so yeah, so the, but then as like, as recovery moved forward, right. And I started to finally start feeling a little bit better. The one thing that has really stuck with me, um, uh, because at this point I'm, I'm, I'm pretty close to, to back to normal, um, which is, which is right around the timeline that the doctors had given me. Right. Um, the one thing that has still stuck with me is my stupid saliva production is still way down. And not even during the day. Like I don't have any trouble eating or anything anymore, which is awesome. And not to rub it in, but it's it's awesome to be able to eat. 
Um, but like, but as soon as I start getting tired and as soon as the sleep, like, cause you have this like daily hormonal cycle that your body goes through, right? As soon as those sleep hormones start kicking in, my saliva completely dries up. I wake up 15 times in the middle of the night to drink more water. Now, are you on any kind it's, of, uh, like, like is Salvatine, a med- like there are medications. Okay. I'm not. I'm not. I'm, I'm thinking I might actually bring that up if it doesn't get better in another month or so. Because w- um, it's supposed to get better. It's supposed okay. to get better. That's what they keep telling me. Uh, I was prescribed something that my uh, new HMO wouldn't pay for, so I'm not taking any. And that, for me, that's such a minor issue is the saliva production. But, yeah, I, I had been told that that can be an issue. Uh, yeah, it's it's really just when I sleep. Like, the rest of it's fine. Like, during the day, I don't even notice it. But, yeah. So, backing up a little bit, what were uh, – talk me through the yeah. recovery process. Like, what were the things that started to fall away? What were the difficult things that you had to deal with? Uh, you know, that that's what you're currently dealing with is the saliva, but – uh, talk me through the overall right. recovery process. Yeah, I mean, it was the biggest thing for me was always my energy and the eating, right? And those kind of go hand in hand, right? Because so I was tired from the radiation anyway, because radiation literally just makes you tired. Um, and and I had some some issues like with my nose and and some discomfort in my nose, and like I still have like like really epic booger production, which is just bizarre. But like, I just, I generate just insane amounts of boogers. It's really weird. Anyway, but that's not, but you're not generating, so, well, I guess saliva glands and is that phlegm or whatever that mucus, I guess. Well, saliva would be from the saliva. Yes. Right. It's mucus up from, it's generated by your mucus membranes. Um, and those are all kind of like, because of the two surgeries, like my sinuses are like, have been reconfigured. Um, so they're physically like different now and they don't work as well, which sucks. Um, my sense of smell oh, still isn't really right. back very much. Um, yeah. Oh, yeah. I lost my sense of smell from the uh, from the surgery, and it didn't come back until about halfway through the radiation. It's still only about at about ten percent. Uh, is there any effect on like your eyesight? No, my eyesight's been fine, which is great because that was a, that was a concern too. Because again, because my cancer was so close to my right. optic nerve. Um, there was an effect right after the surgery because they had to kind of move some muscles around some of the, cause you have a lot of little muscles that control your eye movement. Um, and they had to move some of those around. They didn't have to cut any, but they had to kind of shove them out of the way to take these tissue samples that's when they were taking the margins, right. To, t- to test for cancer. Um, and so my right eye was, was a little messed up after the surgery. I had trouble like tracking and, and stuff like that. But, but that cleared up, which, which they said it was, was probably was, was very likely that it would. So that was good. Um, but yeah, sense of smell, like I lost my sense of taste for a long time during the radiation. Uh, that didn't come back until late January. Um, and that makes it just hard to eat too. Like even, even outside of any discomfort, not being able to taste anything makes it really hard to eat. If I remember being cautioned about that, like, oh, your taste might and it might be altered. And I remember thinking, big deal, you know, I can eat something if I can't taste it. it, it until you've until you've experienced that, it really is amazing <laughs> what a difference it makes. You know, the, like I think you take yeah. for granted your taste if you've never lost it, but once you lose your taste and what yeah. that does to being able to eat or not eat uh, is is pretty amazing. Um, well, and just emotionally, it just takes yeah. all the joy of, yeah. out of eating, even if you physically can do it, right? It just takes all the joy out of it. It just makes it this mechanical process that you have to get through to literally put fuel in your body. And it's just that was that was hard for me, actually, because like eating is, is one of the, the purest joys in life. Nope, not I to understand. rub it in. Yep. <laughs> uh, 
but but so that was that was really hard for me and like the fruit when my taste started coming back that was really really huge uh just in in my overall outlook uh for everything so yeah so and like i i had a fair amount of like anxiety issues that were exacerbated by by just the physical discomfort and the tiredness and, and all that kind of stuff um and and those made it hard for me to sleep um, so I had a lot of sleeping problems for a while there, despite all the exhaustion. Um, so those weren't that wasn't a lot of fun. But that's uh, that is also kind of cleared up at this okay. point, which okay. is great. So yeah, I mean, like, I mean, I'm pretty positive health wise these days. Like, yeah, I have issues, but like, man, compared to where I was, like, I mean, it's just like, yeah, my my mouth gets dry when I sleep, and it's annoying because I have to wake up and drink water. But like. That is like a, a zero on the scale. You know what I mean? Compared right. to what well, I was going through. Well, and also for me, it's because I've, I've still got, and I'll mention, I'll talk about this in a minute, but I've still got a, a fair amount of issues that I'm dealing with. But for me, it's mostly, uh, you know, hey, I, I'm alive. You know, I, I'm not, you know, this is not a terminal right. case. Uh, and as we mentioned earlier, you know, both of us are now, they're having to watch us closely. It could come back. Like, neither of us is necessarily free and clear, but that it, it's right. not the existential crisis that it was previously. Yeah. Uh, yeah, absolutely. And the, the thing for me too, now that I'm, now that I'm kind of mostly back, back to normal. Um, and, and this was even the case about halfway through my recovery. So once, once my system started to fade, it was like, I just, I, I no longer had this sense of like just staring down the barrel of this long and unpleasant treatment process. Right. Like, like it was like, okay, well things are actually starting to get better now. Like I can, I can, like think about life in a normal fashion now uh which which i just hadn't been because like i was so i was so tired and so uncomfortable that like i literally just for my to keep from like breaking down like emotionally and just like crawling into a hole like i just had to keep narrowing my focus down and down and down and down and like we were super busy at work too because like gdc was a big deal for stardock right and so and i was really heavily involved in planning for that and so that was a ton of work and so like i just like my focus got kept getting like shorter and shorter time frame to where i was just like i wasn't even looking to the end of the day i was just like getting by hour to hour um and being able to to get away from that has been so like it's 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 very nice uh so i i've still got um like you you mentioned eating and i you know i I have no problem for the most part people talking about eating, but that for me is the really big thing that I'm struggling with. Uh, so my yeah. radiation, because it did, uh, you know, it was a long uh, process and it was a lot of radiation uh, and it did a lot of damage from my soft palate all the way down to what's called my epiglottis, which is a valve that determines whether you mm-hmm. inhale or swallow something. You know, it, it, mm-hmm. it's the final arbiter between whether it's respiration or digestion, you know, whatever's passing down your throat. And mine basically doesn't work. So when I when I swallow, when I whether I'm drinking water or swallowing food or whatever, uh, I cough a lot um, because it, it doesn't quite Ugh. get put in the right place all the time. Um, right. So and then when I cough, because I don't have my soft palate was basically destroyed and there was some fallout from that, uh, you know, it goes up into my nose and it just becomes a big ordeal. Uh, I can oh, eat, but my taste is still wonky too. Uh, you know, it, it's, it's, it's difficult for me. And um, so partly by choice, partly because it's the only way I can really keep up my caloric intake, uh, three times a day I sit down with these two cans of this really gross – 
protein, calorie, like nutrient stuff. Um, and I, I have a, a little bitty tube. It's about the diameter of like the cable on your mouse, for instance. And it just goes straight into my okay. tummy. Um, you know, I've got a bandage over it because where it goes into my stomach, a little bit like maybe two inches above my belly button, um, it's weirdly enough, it's kind of like an open wound there. Like, I don't want to get too gross, but it sometimes bleeds. Um, and so I oh, wear a bandage man. over it. Uh, and then at the end of this, this little tube, which is maybe about three inches long, is a valve, which is not at all sophisticated. It is exactly like one of those valves on an air mattress that you would blow up at the pool. You know, the, with the little plastic fold-over oh, thing God. that sticks in. Uh, there is nothing high-tech about this tube in my stomach. When they explained it to me at first, you know, I thought there were going to be like valves and clasps and, you know, coils and, yeah. and machinery. It's just a straight tube to the top of my stomach. Um, oh, so I unclip the little valve at the top, and then I put a syringe into it so it can hold a lot of liquid, you know, not with a needle or anything, just the plastic thing. Uh, and I yeah. slowly pour into the syringe this liquid. Now, I'm not taking a plunger and pushing it in because uh, I guess I could do that, but that would be uncomfortable because it would just like all this stuff would quickly go into my stomach and I wouldn't like the feel of that. So instead, uh-huh. I sit here for literally an hour holding up this syringe, waiting for this stuff to drip <laughs> into my stomach. Uh, and because of where I have to hold it, you know, so that the, the tube is elongated, so it goes, it flows in more quickly, even though it's super slow. Uh-huh. Uh, it's right under my nose, and it smells awful. I am so friggin' sick of the smell of this protein stuff. Uh, so that, for me, is mealtime, and I do that three times a day. Uh, I get about 2,000 calories a day. I get about 90 grams of protein. Um, there's no way I'm going to build up weight, but I'm maintaining my weight with this. Uh, hopefully over time my epiglottis will heal and I'll be able to, to eat again. So th- I'm kind of standing by for that. Right. Um, the other things are, you know, you mentioned you've got the uh, the dry mouth. I kind of have the opposite effect in that, and again, not to be gross, but I'm constantly like coughing up phlegm, uh, you know, all that damage in the length of my esophagus. There's just a lot of mm-hmm. mucus that gets created there as it's healing itself. Um, yeah. Yeah, and I wonder if that's. I'm hoping that like my the booger you know, like production, said, my right? booger production will will go down because it's. I mean, it's it's ridiculous. It's like uh, it's not as bad as having to like cough up crap all the time. And like I was fortunate in that like my cancer was not in my throat, and so my throat really didn't get uh, very much radiation. I, I had some issues like with my soft palate and stuff because I did get some radiation into my lymph nodes. Uh, just as, as solely as a preventative thing, um, because that it, if it did spread, that would be the next place that they would expect it to spread. And so, uh, so anyway, but uh, yeah, with all the all the radiation, all the damage up there, like I get this these gross boogers all the time, and I really want them to stop. For me, it's uh, yeah, because I, I have to like wake up and spit like phlegm like it's uh like it interrupts oh. sleep it makes it difficult to, to to talk for the longest time um i couldn't go out to movies because i knew i was going to have to get up and spit and i didn't want to carry around like a spittoon or anything like oh. that uh just as a point of pride i don't want to have to spit into a spittoon or something uh right so it took a while before i knew i could sit in one place for 90 minutes without having to cough up a bunch of phlegm uh right uh, let's see the other thing i'm having to deal with uh 
So this is just a vanity thing, but I know my voice is much higher pitched and squeaky now because I don't have a soft palate. I didn't know that. You know, I'd heard people tell me, yeah, your voice sounds a little different. And I didn't think anything of it uh-huh. until I recorded a movie podcast with the, the other guys on that I do the movie podcast with uh, and was sitting down to edit it afterwards and was like, holy fuck, I sound like that? That is awful. <laughs> so, but again, that's just a vanity thing. Uh I was I was super worried about my voice. Like I like I am I, I am think, a, a yeah. Singer, I don't think your, your voice like, doesn't isn't changed, is it? Like you seem to sound the no. same way you always sounded to me. No, my voice my voice hasn't, which which makes me very happy because it's always been like you know we all we all have things that we like about ourselves or our bodies or the, or the way our, our brains work or whatever. And my voice has always been one of those things for me. I like were, my it, voice. Were you told I, that, I like that to it could sing. be affected? Oh sure. Sure. I mean, there's there's a bunch of horrible things happening in that whole area of the body, right? Um, and so I was super concerned about that, but but I have not had to deal with that, which is awesome. Um, because like I would rather I would literally rather have lost my eye oh, wow. than had yeah, yeah. screwed with. Uh, one of the great um, one of the things that I uh, going in, you know, because a lot of times when you're getting chemo or radiation, you lose your hair, and I've you know, I've already got plenty of a receding hairline. I was like, you know what? Fine. Fuck. Take it. What do I care? But that wasn't part of mine. Uh, instead, my my beard and I never you have a great beard. I never had a great beard. My beard now is even patchier than it was before, uh, which is like, oh, great. You know, I, I, I offered to let you know, fine. Make me go bald. That's fine. But instead, you just make my beard even more scraggly than it ever was. Thanks. Uh, yeah, I was super pissed. Uh, I didn't lose any hair for a long time, and then toward the end, like the entire right side of my beard went completely away. And, oh, that's hilarious. Yeah. Okay. Well, because that's yeah, it was so so that, and then like actually there was like this this like almost stripe, this horizontal stripe like across the back of my like from my ear right ear down to about the middle of the back of my skull where I lost a lot of hair, and it looked so dumb. So I had to shave my head even farther down than I normally do because I'm also balding and, you know, I'm in my mid 30s. I'm balding. It's that's the way it goes. But my, so that didn't even bother me that much. It's like, oh, whatever, I'll, I'll take it down farther. But like the right. beard is like I had to shave down to the Van Dyke. Like I have had a full beard for years and years and years. That's like how I think of myself. I was bummed out that I was beardless you, there for a while. Well, not beardless. Van Dyke but, are you going back to a full beard? What do you Oh, no, I'm already back to the full beard. I was really glad it came back just in time for GDC, right, which I was very happy public about. With so. a lot of people. Right. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. Uh, so. Do you have any. Um, so I have this was um, when they gave me the chemo because of how sort of insidious the, the toxin is. They warn you about some side effects that you might suffer. Uh, and I was delighted after each treatment to not suffer those side effects. However, and I guess it can happen this way. It was only like a few weeks after the final chemo that they started to kick in. Uh, so one oh. of the things I have from the chemo is uh, my hearing is kind of fucked up. Um, everything sounds muffled. And, and this, Adam, has been driving me crazy for literally the last, I guess, five months now. Uh, it never goes away. There's ringing in my right ear. And it's almost like it's almost like a horror movie, like like something that would drive somebody crazy. It's like a Chinese water oh, torture. Like, it will not stop. And I'm told that might go away, uh, which I'm looking forward to. Yeah. Uh, yeah. And then the weight loss. Like, I would love to get back to my normal weight. I'd love to start exercising again. Uh, I just – Yeah. Uh, so, okay, so let's talk about our prospects going forward. Uh, sure. 
for me, uh, you know, when I went in and I got my final scans, where they're going to tell you, you know, whether or not the treatment was effective, um, I went in and the doctor, uh, for the longest time, you know, I, I went in and got the scans, and then they, they scheduled a, a visit four days after the scans, where I would go in and find out if I'd been, you know, cured of this particular instance of cancer. Uh, and I kept thinking, well, if he gets good news, he's probably just going to call me and leave me a message and say, just so you know, I know your appointment isn't for a few days. We want you to know the scans look great. You know, I was sure he would do something like that. So I get no call, you know, and I'm like, oh, great. Well, that's it. You know, and again, you're you're doing the worst case. It's like when you're Googling things, the worst case scenario is what's sort of bubbling to the top of your imagination. Uh, And I go in and I've got my two closest friends with me uh, at the appointment there. And we're sitting there waiting for the doctor. Um, and it's w- one of the grimmest moments of my life is I've been through all this crap and I just want to be told that it worked, you know, that it had the desired effect. Yeah. Um, and nobody has told me that yet. So I'm sitting with my, with my friends waiting for the doctor to come in. Uh, he sends an assistant in and the assistant is sort of looking over me. Um, and then the assistant says, um, by the way, I think things looked pretty good. And I was like, oh, really? You know, I wanted to hear more about this. And he's like, well, I'll let the doctor talk to you about that. And then he leaves, and I'm thinking, well, wait, why didn't he elaborate? There must be some Uh, but, kind of like a qualifier. Right. So then the doctor comes in, and my oncologist is this hugely – well, he's very soft-spoken, very compassionate. Uh, He's an Indian guy, super slim. He doesn't at all look like an oncologist. He looks and sounds like he might be like a therapist. Um really soft-spoken okay. and you know he'll talk and he'll look you in the eye and when he asks you a question he listens and he's he's, he's holding your gaze and I, I love this guy so he comes in uh, and he's like just looking me over and asking me some questions and the whole time I'm thinking you know fuck why isn't he telling me about the scans you know why hasn't he said anything yeah um, and he's gonna do the nose scope on me and I'm thinking well wait why does he have to do the nose scope you know there's got to be something still going on and only after he's been in there for about 20 minutes does he finally say, oh, and by the way, the scans looked great. You know, there's no sign of anything. <laughs> and I'm like, why would you bury the lead, you know, open with that? I've been obsessing over it for four days. Uh, right. So that's where I am now. And, you know, and I, and I ask, I say, well, can I use words like remission? And he's like, well, no, we don't want to do that yet because – and this is where I am now. He says, quote – it's not uncommon that it comes back in the next year or two. Right. And, and I immediately right. asked, well, what do you mean not uncommon? You know, what, what kind of numbers can you get? Like, is there a percentage? And I even said, in what percentage of the patients does it come back? Uh, and he said, it, you know, in, in about 30% of the patients, it comes back in a year or two. Which at first, you know, I hated hearing that. Uh, right. But it's also not how I personally would have presented the numbers. I would have presented the numbers, and I would have much rather heard the numbers as there is a 70% chance that you won't have it come back. So right. that's the way I'm thinking of it now. Uh, you know, I'm holding out hope that my epiglottis will fix and I'll be able to eat soon. Uh, the next round of yeah. tests that I go in for are to see whether my thyroid gland, which can affect energy levels, whether that was affected. Um but at this point, I am technically, quote unquote, you know, cancer free for the time being. Um, all right. Yeah. So where are you and what, what are you, you? You've got to get your saliva glands working again. That would be ideal. Yes. Uh, the I, I could move down a couple percentiles in the booger mm-hmm. production category. That would be fine. Um, 
No, I go in for I, like I have a, a not maybe not quite a lifetime, but a number of years of regular MRIs. Because uh, the thing with the sinus is that you just you can't see in there except for with an MRI. Like that's the only way we see anything. Um, and so I actually have my first post treatment MRI uh, in uh, like two weeks. Oh, well, I I have a bottle of Advan at home, so I don't even have to ask for it. Uh, So so I have that. Uh, You know, my doctor told me she's like, you know, we didn't because we didn't see any cancer while we were in there in the surgery. We went through the radiation treatment. We don't expect this MRI. If we see anything, it would be a surprise. We don't expect to see anything. This is just a baseline MRI to Ah, compare, you know. The one three months from now and the one three months from that and the one three months from that and, and, and just to keep an eye on things. So that's where I am. Um, you know, there is this type of cancer in this part, this part of the body. I think I have a similar uh, re- uh, uh, reoccurrence rate of something like something like 30 percent of, of uh, patients with similar cases. I mean, it's, it's all different, though, right? Because it's 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 hard to there's no real apples to apples like comparison or, or body of work or anything, especially with uncommon cancers yeah, like yeah. we have, like squamous cell cancer in your thirties, in your, in, in my case, in my sinus, in your case, in your pharynx, these are not normal things. And actually mine is so, right? mine is fairly common if it's higher in the pharynx. So what was rare about mine is that it was really low in the pharynx. Uh, and that's what made it, okay. uh, that's what made it uncommon. Yeah. Cause no one okay. famous has, yes. I can't say, yeah, I've got the same cancer that Roger Ebert or Michael Douglas. Both of them had what would be commonly called throat right. cancer, uh, or I think Roger Ebert's was the saliva glands. But I, I, I don't think anyone famous had my cancer. Uh, is that the case with yours? Right. Is there anyone famous who had sinus Oh, cancer? yeah. Yeah. God, yeah. no. God, no. Yeah. The, You're in, no. Adam. You no, are now isn't. the guy. You know, it, in many Pretty years, much. Some, some guy will say, yeah, it's the same ca- cancer that Adam uh, – be- let me try your last name again. Be- Beesner? <laughs> Oh, you got yeah, it. The same cancer Adam Beesner had uh, 30 years from now. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> when I'm when I'm big and rich and famous. Uh, and then for finally, sure. real quick, you mentioned the Ativan. Do you mind talking about like medications? Yeah. Like, did you get uh, so so you were given? Was there anything? Uh, and I don't want to make light of it, but was there any sort of fun medications you were given? No. So uh, for my first surgery, I got Tylenol three, which is Tylenol and codeine. Yep. And that stuff was actually pretty good. That stuff uh, was all right and, and took got me through my first surgery. Although, again, the recovery from my first surgery wasn't actually that bad. It was a couple days and then I was pretty much fine. Um, for my second surgery, I got uh, what's called Norco, which is a, a formulation of hydrocodone and uh, some other stuff. But uh, that was – and that was what they gave me in the hospital. That was the big problem. So like, oh, that's I can't what you were allergic to. Okay. Yeah. Well, I, it's not even really allergic, but it's it, – I have a bad okay. reaction to it. and it, I have, I have, a, I have a, a really high nausea reaction to it. So, so no. <laughs> I haven't gotten any, any medication that's worth a damn. Uh, you know, I got some like some uh, uh, anti-nausea stuff when I, was, when I was having trouble with that with the radiation. Um, but other than that, like the Ativan actually is really nice. Like it does – it is amazing for yeah. helping me sleep. Um, although I'm very like wary about it. I don't take it. Like I haven't taken it in. in why in why are you wary about it? Is, right, what? Uh, Cause it's, it's okay. habit forming. Um, and anything that you do to take any medication that helps you sleep has a danger of 
making you just psychologically dependent on that medication in order to get to sleep. Right. And so, so I'm just, I'm very wary about it in that regard. Um, so I haven't taken it for a while, but I, I do, it is pretty nice actually. So I've also got some Ativan that I just don't use because I, yeah. And I guess it hadn't occurred to me, but I, I'm sort of, I've sort of abandoned sleep going well, but I guess if I wanted to, I could revert to the Ativan. Uh, and sure. Yeah, for me, it, it, it was about getting to sleep. Like I still – the Ativan doesn't stop me from waking up to have to, to you know, drink water and, and, and all that other kind of stuff to deal with my lack of saliva. But I mean I literally was like – I would just lay in bed for like four hours and not get to right, sleep right. and it was miserable. So the Ativan for me, they gave me because when I told the doctor, you know, I'm kind of freaking out having the mask on my face. Uh, he said, mm. well, let me write you a prescription for Ativan. Just take an Ativan before you come in. Uh, and get your your radiation, mm-hmm. and I did that a couple of times, and then decided I don't I don't think I really need this. I'm going to try it without, and then just ended up getting used to it. So I've got a bottle of Ativan that I don't even need. Um, also, a weird yeah. thing happened with me uh, because you know I lost 40 pounds. I didn't really have it to lose, but one of the weird things from that, the mask got looser. You know, literally oh, my face kind of melted in away from the mask. And it wasn't as tight against me. And they even noticed, noted that at the end. They were like, okay, you have to hold your head still. You've got some wiggle room in there. We don't want to have to make you a new mask. And I didn't want them to have to make one either. Uh, so, right. you know, my mask got looser. Um, I also was prescribed uh, um, oxycodone, which I think is uh-huh. the same thing as oxycontin, which I know of as the stuff that Rush Limbaugh was addicted to. Uh, so I have that here and that was just, um, a general painkiller and I've got that here and I, I sometimes take it just when I feel really crappy. Um, and the funny thing about it, uh, so I don't, I don't know if you know from Parks and Rec who Harris Whittles is, um, he was one of the writers, he was a producer on the show. Uh, he was a comedian, um, and he he overdosed on heroin, uh, I think, literally a week before the final episode aired. Um, oh, wow. And I had actually heard him interviewed. There's this really weird interview he does with uh, uh, Pete Holmes. On a uh, uh, Pete Holmes has a podcast called You Made It Weird. And about two months before Harris Whittles uh, died, he did an interview with Pete Holmes where he talks very frankly about doing heroin. Um, and supposedly huh. when he was talking to Pete Holmes, he was off heroin, he was clean. And then at some point in the next few months, got back onto it, died of an overdose. Uh, yeah, but yeah. he talks about how he, a, a very affluent, um, white guy basically got involved in hard drugs. And, uh, I don't know why I point out he's white, that doesn't matter, but an affluent guy who could get into any drugs he wanted, any prescription medication, cocaine, whatever, how it was he got to taking heroin, and it was because he was he was looking for something that was more powerful than oxycodone, which is the stuff that I've been prescribed. So when I yeah. take it, you know, and I and to hear Harris Whittles talk about how heroin was the replacement for oxycodone, is it kind of replicated that feeling for him, but less expensively? Uh, I'm I'm utterly mystified because I don't get anything nearly as euphoric as what I imagine heroin is like when I take 10 milligrams of this oxycodone. I just feel a minor kind of pleasant – you know, it makes my mood better. Like instead of being in a crappy mood, I just get in a slightly better mood. It lasts maybe an hour or whatever, 
it's it's so mild to me that it was really weird to hear Harris Whittles talk about how it led him to do heroin. Um, yeah, I had the same the same reaction to the codeine actually. Like, it doesn't make me like crazy euphoric or anything, but it makes me yeah, a little it happier. Just makes me feel a little happier about how shitty things are. You know, even though things are shitty, <laughs> I, yeah, right. okay, I'm in an okay mood now. Fine, good. Um, and yeah. I don't remember, you know, yeah. being a kid and experimenting with drugs. You know, in high school, I was a huge stoner for a long time. Uh, I've abused my share of um, uh, Vicodin, like at parties when somebody has a Vicodin and you have a Vicodin with whiskey or whatever. I've done my share of that as a dumb kid. Uh, and and this the situation now is nothing like that. It's just like it it makes my mood a little bit less bad, uh, which yeah. I get. Yeah. 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 But yeah. Uh, so I mean, the good part is that like I don't have a whole lot of symptoms going on anymore. The weird thing is that what I do do is I put I take Vaseline and I put it on a Q-tip. Uh-oh. And I, I don't and know if I want to hear like, this. This, this might this might freak me out. I, yeah. Go on. No, I coat the inside of my nose. Oh my god. That's it. <laughs> Wow, and that and that it's feels so, good to you, or that that like is a palliative thing? Yeah, because I have crazy problems with my with my the insides of my nostrils and my sinuses and stuff drying out. Man, I can't imagine putting Vaseline on the inside of my nose. It just seems weird. It sounds a lot weirder okay. than it is. I mean, think about it. Like, there's a bunch of snot up there all the time, anyway, and like. That's like Vaseline is Vaseline. Oh, you know, I don't know. Isn't Vaseline it's like, like a mentholiptus stuff, or maybe I'm confusing it with something else? No, no. Vaseline is straight up just petroleum jelly. It's, it's not very like the neutral. Stuff you rub on yourself when you have a cold on your chest. To get, okay, that's no, what I'm imagining. No, I'm imagining no. that in your nose. That would be terrible. It seems. Yeah, that would don't be do that horrible. Thing. Don't do that one. Yeah. <laughs> no, but other than that, like I'm not on any medication or anything anymore, which is great because I hate well, being on I'll medication. I'll hopefully catch so. up with you soon enough. So, given time, yeah. Hopefully. Well, Adam, Hopefully. thank you so much for talking to me about this. And, and listeners, uh, sorry to I, – I don't know if this was instructive to you to listen to a couple of middle-aged guys – or Adam, you're not middle-aged yet – to listen <laughs> to a couple of guys sort of hold forth about their, their travails. Uh, but it – I feel like we should give a medal to anybody who actually made it through oh. this entire like almost no two-hour podcast. If I thrown away that medal that I got from my my radiation treatment, I would send it to whoever's <laughs> still listening. Um, well, listeners, right. before you go, because this is some super exciting stuff to me, uh, Adam, I want you to tell us a little bit about uh, what what Stardock is up to. Um, yeah, I mean, absolutely. Kind of uh, so, me. like the lineup that you guys have coming down the pike. And, and you just piled so many it's, more on top of this already generous heap at GDC. Uh, it's it's a lot of stuff to do, and and it's you know that comes with its challenges on on my side for sure. Uh, you know, it, it, being as I am on the publishing publishing side, but uh, but no, it's awesome. So like basically, to the long story short. Stardock sold Impulse to GameStop back in 2000-whatever, right? GameStop wrote a big check for that. Stardock basically took that money and reinvested it into new, new development. Um, so we have things like uh, – internally, we have Galactic Civilization 3 and Sorcerer King. One of which is out next um, which month, are, right? Like Galactic Civilization 3 is yes. impending. Yeah. Yes. Uh, that's out in April, which is very exciting. Uh, it's been in early access for a while. Now, are and the builds, I presume the builds it, you guys are currently working with aren't the same ones that people are playing in early access, or are they? Uh, um, so, like, they are fr- very briefly right after we do a, a big update. Very briefly, they're they're kind of the same build, but but right, they diverge pretty okay. quickly. Um, so so there will be some new stuff there, and and Galsiv is actually due, I think, pretty quickly for another beta update for our early access players. So you get another another one more content drop before 
the uh, before the game comes out. I believe it's a plan. Don't totally hold me to that because I'm not. I'm a, I'm kind of off the clock is there, right is there now. A date um, at this point, it's just April. There is a date, but I don't know how solid okay, we are at it. I think we're pretty solid, but I don't want to give it out. Yep, fair on enough. Podcast. Fair enough. We'll wait. Good. Okay. Uh, it'll, it, but there'll probably be an announcement mm-hmm. very soon. Um, I just I haven't cleared it with the powers sure. that be. So uh, so that's coming out in April. Um, Sorcerer King is coming out in July. That's our other internal project, and that's our kind of offshoot uh, fantasy forex. That is. Um, it's it's this it's a very different kind of hybrid thing where like it's instead of being like racing the other players to to whatever victory condition like you do in a normal forex, you're actually trying to stop the sorcerer king before he blows up the world, right? And so it's it's this asymmetrical thing, and you're like we kind of think of it as the ultimate stack of doom game because you are you're recruiting you're getting these heroes and you're in your uh, recruiting, you know, units, and then, but then we have this whole crafting system where uh, you, you know, you make different armors and weapons, and you enchant them, and you give them to your units and your heroes, and like, I mean, it's 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 super powerful in the game. Like, you have to go find the reagents to be able to do it. But then, like, like a unit with full equipment is is like twice as powerful or more than a than a unit, you know, fresh out of your city, right? And then a unit with like fully equipped and enchanted is like another like order of magnitude of power. So like. It's it's really about building this super awesome stack of doom and going and and making your journey into you know the heart of the sorcerer king king's domain and going and kicking him in the uh, teeth. What what has and, me really excited about that, Adam, is I've recently been playing um, the latest Total War game is Total War Attila, and one of the yeah. cool things they do there is they rework the traditional structure of you know like in Shogun you would get a small uh, uh, province, you know, get a handful of province, and you have to grow it, and it, it swallow the other provinces. Um, and that's kind of right. the Total War pattern. Uh, Total War Attila completely reworks that structure with this big, huge Roman Empire that you can play in the middle, and it's crumbling, or you can be one of these barbarians on the outskirts that's sort of eating into the Roman Empire. Uh, and it creates yeah. a whole different dynamic than that usual, you know, take your handful of provinces and then grow them to conquer the map. I love how Sorcerer King is a similar kind of structural shift to the traditional four X's. Yeah. I mean, one of the things that I really like about it, cause I'm, I'm a huge four X guy and a huge strategy guy and I play them all. One of the things I really like about Sorcerer King is that you're, you're using familiar tools, right? You're, you're settling cities and you're building buildings in them and you have armies that you're moving around the map. Like, so you have familiar tools, but you're solving very different problems with them. Right, and so I, I like that about that game a lot, and I think that's that's it's I think it's going to be something fairly fairly cool. Uh, I think it already is something fairly cool, but uh, so that it comes out in July. Playable in early access. That's right. Yep. That's right. Uh, and yep. Before you move um, on to other so, announcements, real quick, also currently playable mm-hmm. in, I guess technically early access, but looking for all intents and purposes to me like a finished game. Uh, why isn't just release Offworld Trading Company like it is? It's fine. <laughs> no, it's going to be so Nobody much better, though. Nobody needs a year to polish uh, a game I'll... in the state of Offworld Trading Company. I don't know what Soren Johnson and Mohawk Games is thinking. <laughs> Soren has, like, 
we're so Soren is 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 like super super invested in the idea of community led development and like an iterative development, um and and doing those things hand in hand with this uh with this long early access period. Soren wanted to come out with Offworld into early access la- like way earlier than than we did, which was February fifteenth is when it actually was became available on early access, um and we we sort of talked him out of it because we're like Soren, you can't show programmer art. We cannot promote your game with programmer art. Stop it. Um, but, but like the game was like really playable, like last summer, like you could absolutely play, like it was functionally very similar to what it is now. It's a lot prettier now. And some of the, you know, some of the UI is a lot better now than it was then. But, uh, but yeah, I mean, this game has been like playable for, for over a year. Um, in, in some form or fashion already, and it's still, you know, it's not out until oh. early 2016. So can I tell you part of my reservations uh, about that, too? Uh, you know, on one hand, sure. fine. If you want to take that long, I mean, and I'm sure it's going to make a difference. I'm sure the finished product is just going to be that much more polished. That's awesome. But part of me thinks, here is this game that, for all intents and purposes, is totally playable. Um, any other company could publish it as a complete game, and, and you know, nobody is going to balk about, oh, it's released too early. Uh because Soren is just going to be working on this for another year, he could instead be working on a new game for a year. Like, the, 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 <laughs> all the polish that is going into Offworld Trading Company is another Soren Johnson game that we're not going to get. So that's part of my reservation there. But uh, yeah. I can understand that. I can understand that. No, Soren's amazing. And Offworld is great. And, I mean, honestly, one of the big, big, big uh, reasons uh, – for that Stardock is, is excited about OTC and, and the fact that it's not till 2016 is that there's a lot of multiplayer infrastructure stuff oh, sure, sure. Um, that is yet to be done uh, for leagues and ladders and, and matchmaking and all this other stuff that's just not there at all right now. Like you can play multiplayer and multiplayer is great. We actually had a patch just drop, uh, I think Tuesday, uh, that fixed a lot of like lag stuff and, and, and other issues that people are having. But I mean, you can play, you know, eight player multiplayer. It's awesome, but it's going to be way cooler. And, and I mean, real, the reality is it's not very common to get more than one right. shot at building the kind of robust multiplayer community that we want. And having that infrastructure place in place is a huge, yeah. huge part of that. Um, and so we want to make sure that when we come out, we come out right. Um, so there's a lot of plans around that, that, that we're very excited about. So that's Offworld Trading Company. Uh, we also have two games, that we, two more oh RTSs my God, that we guys, just that's announced. That's too many for G- one guy to play even. I mean, yeah. All right. So wait, these were right. These were just announced. Tell us about these. Yep. So Servo is a game by Dave Pottinger. Uh, Dave Pottinger's new company, which is called Bonus XP, is not that new. They've been around for a year, two years, or three years or something. Dave's going to hear this and yell at me for not knowing when his company was founded. But uh, no, and, and Bruce Shelley is working with those guys at Bonus XP on Servo. Bruce Shelley, of course, is one of the like, you know, grand professors of, of strategy games, like literally one of the godfathers of the genre. He's amazing. Um, I was really excited actually to meet Bruce at GDC. It was the first time I met him and he is he's just an amazing amazing guy so anyway um so servo is this rts from this from a lot of the team that was behind age of empires um so they have a lot of age of empires age of mythology in their blood um and what servo is is it's basically the marriage of like almost an action rpg kind of uh, loot progression with tradi- in, in a lot of ways traditional rts gameplay um, so, so you have these, these giant, uh, war machines that are called servos 
and you basically they ha- each one of them has like its own paper doll with its own you know equipment slots and you can find different parts to put in and it's like different weapons different legs different accessories all this different stuff different heads um and they that is that determines what they do obviously in combat um, and then a- after every match, you earn new parts that you can then you know reequip on your servos, customize your team, do whatever you want. And servo is really really cool. It's actually like I wish we had been able to launch it with a playable demo, uh, because like once you get your hands on servo and you start playing it, you're like, oh oh this is good. Like it's one of those games that really comes across when you start playing it and when you start playing it multiplayer and you start understanding like how many kind of layers there are to it. It's really, really neat. It's one I think that you, in particular, Tom, I think you're going to really like Servo. And certainly, yeah, Uh, with a pedigree like that, I kind of don't even care what the game is. I just can't wait to see what they're doing. (laughs) They're they're amazing. They are such pros. Like, I love working with those guys. Um, So so that's out in early access in a bit. I don't know if we've really announced much of an early access date for that, but it'll be this year. Um, they're, They're actually really far along. And and we could launch it. the The date that we have for them is very generous. They could we could move it up a couple months, and they would they would be fine because they're amazing and they're they're just super pros. Uh, and their game is awesome. So so that's Servo. And then the the other one is Ashes of the Singularity, which is if you if anybody saw the Star Swarm demo that we came out with uh, actually last January. Uh, was it was an engine demo for what's called the nitrous engine which is what oxide games is making and they're another team uh that's out in maryland and ashes of the singularity is 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 a really really large scale rts like this engine that they've made is incredible Um, lets us put just a ridiculous number of stuff on on screen and in the simulation um and it looks really good because they're like crazy geniuses with the engine but more importantly to me and to a lot of people i suspect is that the the engine being so technically amazing for lack of a better term and there's a lot of reasons for this that i'm that we don't need to get into right now but it not only does it let us render all these things but it lets us have a more complex gameplay simulation not complex is even the wrong word but a more accurate gameplay simulation it lets us run a lot more ai on each unit so the units behave a lot more intelligently you can group the units together and so when you group the units together into what we're currently calling a meta unit those all those units become aware of all the other units in their meta unit and they react appropriately to combat situations so that like the the dream that of of rts for me in a lot of ways has always been about like okay i'm gonna make this army i'm gonna give them an order to like okay you guys go defend that mountain pass that's your job you're the army you go do it and in ashes we're a lot closer to be able to actually doing that in reality because we're you're gonna have hundreds of units thousands of units in your army and it's gonna be this big huge large scale thing with multiple simultaneous battlegrounds we need to get the micromanagement out of it and the only way to do that is to make you not feel like you need to do the micromanagement like you get or you I mean, you could do the Kohan thing, right, and make it literally impossible to micromanage or focus fire. And there's a, there's some stuff in the design that that is involved in that in that regard. But a big, big part of it is, is making it not feel like that is what you have to do to win. 
Um, and that's that's what's very exciting to me about Ashes of Singularity and the Nitrous Engine. So, and the Nitrous Engine is is a huge investment that we've made with those guys, um, and it, that's going to be powering a lot of of Stardock games in the coming years. Is, is Ashes uh, as well? Is Ashes currently the only game using the Nitrous Engine in development that's been announced? Right. Yes. Okay. Yes. Well, uh, uh, Star Control will use the Nitrous. Oh, Engine Oh, right. As well. Of course. Yeah. And that's right. You guys are doing that. I was going to ask: Is there uh, is there anything you guys are making that isn't a strategy game? But Star Control is arguably, I guess you might say, an action slash RPG. Yeah, Star Control is yeah, not really yeah. a strategy. Uh, yeah, so we're making Star Control. Uh, there's not really anything to say about it right now, other than than that. Does we're it have a number? It. Like, is, uh, is that even announced? Like, is it? Are you just calling it Star Control? Is it a Star Control? Are you sticking? It's not going to be Star okay. Control Four. I know that for so sure. So a reboot, basically. Uh, you guys can reboot the franchise. Go yeah, for it. I'm fine with that. Yeah. Yeah, I mean. You know, and and we've been very, very upfront about the fact that we're not trying to, like, use you know, uh, the Star Control Two aliens right. or or any of that beloved stuff. It's not going to be a continuation of Star Control Two. Obviously, there was already a Star Control Three that everybody would like to forget about wasn't. anyway. <laughs> right. So, so I don't even know what I'm talking about. Um, you know, we want to make a new Star Control, and so yeah, I guess you could call it a reboot if you wanted to. It's it's. I think of it more as like. If you could make Star Control 2 with modern technology and all the amazing stuff that modern technology lets us build, not just graphically, but but design-wise and networking-wise, and it's not going to be an MMO, don't worry. Um, but like, but there are things you can do that that you just could not do right in in '96 or whatever the hell Star Control 2 was. Um, that there that are really really cool that. But I mean, we are making it is absolutely we are coming at it from like this is going to this is a game for Star Control 2 fans. It's not Star Control 2.5, but it is a game for Star Control 2 fans because we are huge Star Control 2 fans. So uh, that's, I guess, about as far as I can probably go. Well, that's, that's, right that's, now, a, yeah, that's a pretty incredible slate of upcoming games. So, yeah, you've, you've got your work cut out excited. for you. And, yeah. We have another game uh, that we haven't announced yet, but we've announced a partnership with uh, Mothership. Uh, Mothership Studios or Mothership mm-hmm. Games or whatever the hell they're called. Mothership, anyway, uh, down there in Texas as well. And uh, we're very excited about that. Uh, those guys have a really cool product that we're very excited to announce. And we'll do, be announcing do we know Mothership year, from anything? Like, do, are there... okay. You don't. This Good. is their Good. first game. Uh, so so we have that. And God, do we have anything else going on? I swear there's like a game or two that I'm forgetting that like somebody's going to be angry with me about. That, that's probably about, about it. it yeah, as if that's a, about it. Yeah, all of those. Right. That's all you're doing? Really, Adam? Nothing else? Wow. That's all I got for you, Tom. I'm sorry. I'm, all we're doing is single-handedly re, like, reviving the RTS. No kidding. You know, there really was a time where people were saying there, there are no genres. conventional RTSs. Basically, they were all MOBAs or whatever. And yeah, it's so, right. yeah, it's so refreshing to have you guys basically – I don't know about single-handedly. I mean, there are other things, but you guys are doing all these big, huge, high-profile RTSs that are arguably conventional RTSs. That, yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, we're making we're, like we're making RTSs. We're. I mean, Offworld obviously is a very different kind of a game, but but I mean, Ashes and right. Servo are right. both like these are RTS games for RTS gamers. Like these are not you know RTS games for right, iPad. Exactly. <laughs> and they're not MOBAs. Thank you God. Know? Don't make any MOBAs. Yeah. Yeah, I, don't, I don't want any MOBAs coming out of Stardock. You, you guys leave that to the other people. Yeah, man. We, I feel like as an industry, we've reached peak MOBA. We have to have reached From peak MOBA. From your mouth to God's ears, Adam. Yeah. <laughs> well, Adam, I really appreciate you uh, hanging out with me for so long today. I wish you 
the best of luck with your health uh, and thank you for just allowing me to talk about my situation and for sharing your situation with folks. Thank you. Absolutely. You too, Tom. Uh, those of you listening, thank you so much um, for sticking with us. We will be back next week. I will be here with um, Bruce Garrick to talk about um, – actually, the cat's out of the bag. We both really love a game called Vietnam 65. Uh, so join me and Bruce to talk about that next week, and we'll see everyone here then. Never, 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 never.